0: Hey everybody, we got a crazy big show for you. And I got crazy energy. Oh, I got does. big championship energy. The Warriors yes. won the championship and I am so excited, Molly.
1: It <clears> was a great it was a great night. It was a great series. It was great to uh see Draymond Green be like, yeah, fans, about you gave me a real hard time, Boston fans, but look what I did. I beat you. <laughs> Oh God! It's so
0: awesome to see them win in this Boston. Uh, we'll talk about the game and and, and uh, the series uh, uh, later in the show. So um, skip,
1: you know skip ahead if you're not a basketball fan, ahead, but, uh, but yeah, it's our it's our backyard, so we're going to do it. And then we have a really interesting interview for you today. Mm. Jason sits down with Kraken CEO Jesse Powell, who get? is yeah a great get uh, about this week's New York Times article about how he was handling or maybe mishandling the company. Um, And then also the state of crypto. I mean, there's really a lot of actually enlightening information about regulation and what's happening in the crypto market
0: and how he's still buying. And I want to I want to get your feedback on how I handled Mm -hmm. that uh, interview, interviewer to interview. It's just I thought it was a great conversation. I think I did a pretty good job using my interview techniques. I will uh, talk about that uh, Mm -hmm. when we get into the show. Um, But of course, it's Friday. You all know and love what happens at the end of the show every Friday. That's okay, Boomer with producer Rachel who in true Gen Z fashion has PTO 10. She's taking a paid day off. As crazy as that is, I don't know, Molly, this whole, this whole generation taking paid time off, using their days off, it's
2: crazy, but it's gonna be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Active Campaign. The hardest thing in business is turning a lead into a customer into a repeat customer simplify the process and start creating repeat customers with 10% off your active campaign subscription today at slash promo/ twist lemon.io need to speed up your product development without draining your budget hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io go to lemon.io/ twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks and Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub For the challenges you face as a startup founder, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is here to help. The platform provides founders with free resources like Azure credits, development tools like GitHub, mentorship resources, productivity software, training, and so much more. The program is open to all and takes five minutes to apply, with no funding required. Learn more and sign up at aka.ms slash This Week in Startups.
0: All right, everybody. The Warriors won the NBA championship last night, beating the Celtics in six games, as I predicted and yep. Molly predicted. Uh, fourth rank for Steph, Clay, Draymond, and Steve Kerr, and Bob Myers, the architect. Uh, also, Andre Iguodalo, I believe, was there for all four. Um, he was. Correct me if I'm wrong. He definitely so, was, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, that, he I like tears. Welled up in my weepy little eyes when he came out and was hugging people and giving people just and giving Tatum like a pep talk. And yeah, I mean, he's just so much
0: heart. It's one of my regrets. I haven't built a relationship with Andre Godalo, You know, he's we're investing both here, now, right? And he's should, investing. So yeah. I, I don't know the people around Andre, but if somebody wanted to hook us up just to you know like have coffee or something, I, I'd love to collaborate with him. I have a lot of respect for him. Obviously, or I'm have friends with Draymond and stuff. Yes. But congratulations to the team. Uh, it was just great to go to all the the home games. Uh, great to sit with you, Molly, uh, and uh, share that experience. That was so um, kind. That
1: was such a great night.
0: Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming here. I know you had like three or four offers and you, and you picked us. And so I, I have the thing about talent. You know, I want to be treated as talent, um, you know, really well. You know, I want to be appreciated for my performance. And if you're appreciated, I think you probably experience this, you tell me if I'm wrong. But when I feel appreciated, I feel like my performance, I can be more confident in my performance. I feel like I can lean in just a little bit more. You know, I, I just feel like a little more confident. I know I probably shouldn't care about other people's support of me as much. But yeah. it's just the nature of doing what we do. If the audience says, "Hey, I really enjoyed that episode," or if your co-host says, "Hey, I really enjoyed that," or the producers, or just anybody involved, an advertiser, the the, the sales team, anybody gives me a little like recognition, I just it just gives me a fills my bucket a little bit. I get just like a little extra ten mm-hmm. percent. Me too. Uh, I think this might be why we're talent because we
1: <laughs> we like to be appreciated. Like, look, it, we like to be appreciated, but everyone does. Maybe Everybody we do does. a little bit more, yeah. and that's why we a became little, talent, yeah. but everyone does it because it's a positive motivation, like positive yes. motivation totally works. And it, it makes you yes. want to do more for the organization or the person yeah. 100%. 100%. I
0: mean, that, and that's like literally on uh, a management uh, style, because I listen, I got 1020 years left in my career. Um, you know, I, I put up good numbers in the first 30. But I really want to put up spectacular numbers, less than 20, uh, enough to buy the Knicks, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so I've really been thinking about just talent, get the great people, make them feel 12 feet tall, make them feel like they could literally pull the sword out of the stone, you know. And, uh, you know, I think doing social things or, you know, understanding what the person likes, and I know you have an affinity for the Warriors, it's just a great experience for us to share. And, you know, it, it makes us better co-hosts and stuff like that. And also... You know, if we were recruiting a, a third person to come here for when we go seven days a week. You it know. feels imminent. And you know, like, I'm not saying that I'm going to bring every co-host and put them in courtside seats. <laughs> but, I mean, if the show keeps doing well, why wouldn't I? <laughs> just, <laughs> well, whatever saying, people, channels, just saying, people. Just saying, Yeah, whatever you're doing now yeah. it might not be as fun as this. <laughs> I, I uh, Steph won the finals MVP. That's nice to see. Yeah. unnecessary for me to see it he is uh for me top 10 player of all time uh bill simmons moved him ahead of like five or six people uh to his 10th position was bill simmons is the expert on these kind of things like the rankings and the list and, and, mm-hmm. and chopping it up so he puts him right behind kobe uh and i you know there's going to be an argument in the coming years you, you know unless kobe's tragic death you know makes it hard to talk about but you know if you look at Steph and kobe and who winds up ultimately having more rings or a bigger impact on the game. Yeah. Kobe feels like just such a fierce competitor. It's hard to think of, you know, displacing him uh, with Steph Curry. But then when you look at Steph Curry and the impact he had on changing the actual game. Yeah. Which is what Bill Simmons and, and all other experts talk about, I think, is the impact on the game itself. I think you would argue pretty easily that Steph changed the game more than anybody, maybe since uh like did Jordan change the game? No. Shaq, I think, maybe had to had to change the rules for Shaq. Yeah. But I don't know if that was a lasting change. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not an no, expert I, on things. Ranking yeah, 100%. A list, but, yeah. I
1: don't either, but I do think that Steph's gravity, like his mm. influence and the way that yeah. the the game has bent around him, the whole league has yes. bent around him, is remarkable. And, you know, I had a big argument with my brother last night because he's just a buzzkill. Um about hey, you know, he's like no superstar has ever needed this much help. And I'm like, mm. that's because it's a super team. Like there's sort of this, I think it's easy for pe- buzzkills like my bro to confuse the, mm. the influence that Steph has had on the game for the idea that he should win it all by himself, Michael Jordan mm. style, When, when really, I think you and I have talked about this a lot. This is actually relevant to the talent conversation. What they have done is put together a team of guys who can all carry each other. Yeah. And show up and, and that Steph can then actually be generous, right? Mm-hmm. He can not take the shot because he's being double or triple teamed and he knows there are people who can. And so you get to like enjoy the rise of Jordan Poole and Wiggins and these players who are just sort of coming out of nowhere and having this huge impact. And it's just, mm-hmm. and GP3 and GP2.
0: And it's just like wonderful to watch. It's just wonderful. It's wonderful. And, you know, Draymond had an up and down series. Uh, but if you look, there were two of the victories that were just absolutely classic Draymond games, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so those victories, I think, turned the tide, including the, the the sixth game where I think he did 12, 12, and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's the heart and soul of the team. He's the engine that gets it going. Yeah. And when you think about his basketball IQ and impact on the game, you know, it takes four wins. <laughs> Two of them are Draymond games. Uh, and I guess three of them are Steph games. I think it, Steph just had three Colossal games as well. I think he had one Colossal game in a loss too. But anyway, you could say this, you know, 10 ways to Sunday, but what, what a trio they have there in, in those three players. Yeah. I I wonder if what, we're, what we've seen with them is just the greatest team ever assembled, especially when you had Kevin Durant on it. Um, and what a bummer for Durant, like to leave this, I know. where they all could have just taken a little less money, could have worked it out. They wanted him to be there. They could have figured out a way to, to have those four all-stars compete, you know, uh, until retirement, I think they could have actually figured that out because to be that dominant, have that many rings off the court, you could have made the money back. So yep. it was a lost, I guess some people would say it's better for the league for parody because it did not seem like the Warriors, as great as they were, were completely invincible. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe they were previously with Kevin Durant or, you know, the first time up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will confess to some doubts during this series or at least some concern, some concern. The Celtics well, yeah. are a great team, right? They are the team of the future. Oh, right. And that I think my my bro is definitely right about. Um,
0: they are the team yeah, of the I future. It's, D- distant future or near future is the question. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like the team of tomorrow. <laughs> I, wa- I mean, uh, I don't know. I, it might be the team of like, because to get past um Giannis, Giannis and to get past Kevin Durant every year for the next five is going to be pretty hard. Yeah. I think they can get back, you know, if they make some good trades and if they stop turning the ball over and they're more consistent on offense. Anyway, congrats everybody. Yeah. Uh, and, and we what love basketball. We love basketball. And you know, just Jordan Poole is in the G League last year, starting sometimes for the Warriors this Ooh, year. Congrats to him. He did
1: only play like 14 games in the G League to be fair. Like yeah, it's, whatever.
0: You know. I mean, it's but still he
1: did. I mean, they, that kid came out of nowhere and you just see the joy on his face. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm not hearing a word against it. They're just absolutely outstanding. Uh, and, and Durant uh, you know, had too many feelings.
0: It's hard. You know, I uh, listen, I'm as somebody who has spent time on all-star teams, yep. you know, emotions uh, matter. It's hard, And, uh, you know, you do, you, it does play a role in keeping a band or a team together is just the emotional uh, connection between everybody. And I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if, it's Kevin's failing or the team's failing or yeah it's just he wanted to do something different and you know, people are allowed to want to do something different, you know. I just think it may go down in history looking like a really bad decision for him. Uh but congratulations to Gary, Gary Payton who spent five seasons in the G League, broke his um elbow, I think, fractured his elbow and then came oh. back. Um and Clay. And Clay. It was Jeff, so great to see Clay get that. Ah yeah. And you know what? He's back great after thing. whatever, a thousand days off and you know, it's just amazing. And let's see, um, well, let's see what happens next year. Um, uh, Boston's got a lot of work to do. Um, And I just hope they keep the team together here in the Bay it, to not let them have a chance to repeat. You know, I, I hope that management doesn't overthink this. I think you got to mm-hmm. keep this team together and uh, just keep working on fundamentals and keeping everybody healthy and thinking about time management for their, whatever number of years you can keep these, this trio together, try to keep them together to the end. It's not always yeah. easy. But you got to get these guys paid. You got to keep as many, you got to keep the trio intact um, is is my belief. And I know they got to, I guess Draymond and Clay are due for extensions. I think whatever it takes to extend the core, just as a fan, just do it. You know, like don't don't get frisky and, you know, try to break up what's working. I think you got, you got a window here of whatever, four more years to just keep it going. Listen, one of the hardest things in business is turning a lead into a customer right you get that lead but now you got to close that customer and keeping that customer around for the long term right it's a funnel do people even know who you are did you get that lead did you turn them into a customer and did they stick with you well one of the best ways to do that is by having a seamless customer experience so you'll save time and provide a tailored experience at scale active campaign helps you automate email marketing sales pipelines Reporting, follow-up, scheduling, notifications, and more. The whole process is dialed in. And it's going to cut out all those tedious manual tasks like moving information around, cutting and pasting, checking for customer replies, and sending emails. You want to have a great process. You want to refine that process. And you need a great tool. And that great tool is ActiveCampaign. So start creating personalized customer experiences and get 10% off your ActiveCampaign subscription today at ActiveCampaign.com promo slash twist that's activecampaign.com slash promo slash twist for 10% off and most importantly to let them know that you're a fan of this week in startups all right um, agreed. two other things just to touch on mm-hmm. one yeah uh the pay time off joke uh <laughs> i just want to let people know i am <laughs> absolutely a fan of people taking pay time off i'm also a fan of people um <laughs>
1: Oh, I know, am like, what is about to happen right now? No, no, no. <laughs> Do I need my red flag? I got it right
0: here. I got yeah. two. Pull the red flag out. <laughs> I just have a couple of thoughts because people are scared right now. And I want to talk about leadership. You may have seen my post to the general Slack room. We're going to talk about Slack because it plays yeah. a big role yeah. in uh, this Kraken interview with Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, I don't Did you see my Slack this morning? Just about yeah. time management. I shared yeah. my schedule. So, I've really been leaning into like, what can you do during a down market? You can focus on your own professional development. Fancy word for, you know, as, um, Scott Adams would say, your skill stack, the cartoonist, um, from, uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> outspoken cartoonist. Uh, I know. I'm like, who blocked me because I got in an argument with him once. I'm kind of a fan of his, of his stream. I like, his like <laughs> rants and stuff like that. And he's a hypnotist and he's like, you know, uh, you know, self-proclaimed, what do you call it? Uh, pers- persuasion expert. And he actually really is. Like, He's actually got some really good thoughts on that. Although he's kind of goes for the crazy Trump support a little bit on the margins. Yeah. Um, yeah. But interesting cat, um, you know, he calls it your skill stack. So your skill stack, uh, which is a great term, uh, is something to work on during a down market. And then just looking at your time and just managing your time and being intentional about it is super important. So what I've started doing is focus time, task management, time blocking, uh, and working with everybody on the team to do the same. If everybody mm-hmm. on your team becomes 10% better at their job, let's say 5% through professional development, they learn a new skill, 5% from better time management. That seems extraordinarily easy to accomplish. If a team does that, for but three months, there is this rule of 72 you divide any number of percentage into the number 72. And that's how much time it takes to double, uh, let's say your money. So if you were getting 7% a month on your money through some crazy crypto exchange, you would double your money in 7.2 <laughs> months. If you were to do it in the stock market, it makes 7.2%. In 10 years, you would double your money. And so if you were in a venture fund and you got 15%, you double your money in five years. If you're in a venture fund that got 30%, you could double your money every you know, but two, uh, two years and change. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I set the goal of making just for the next three months by September, because it's going to be a gnarly summer of bad news. um, Just trying to charge my teams up 10% better every month for but three months. And we'll see where we are in September. And Mm -hmm. I'll have everybody reflect on that. So I've been doing that with our team. And so you have to do that as the leader. So if you're a founder, and you're scared, because I see the paralysis, Molly, people are scared. And f- when you're the leader, it gets particularly scary. Now here's the challenge: we use the metaphor. Uh, I'm not going to use war now. I'm going to use the plain metaphor. <laughs> uh, and please help me, Molly. If there's a better the metaphor, is, if you find a <laughs> metaphor no, totally. that has to do with yoga or singing folk songs, I'll use no. it for business. But maybe I, sports, like maybe okay, sports great. is the source, sports. right? Like we're
1: in a seven game series. We just lost sure. game one of a seven game Perfect. series. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Okay, so
1: now you're then the nobody coach. dies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> <Right>? Fine. <laughs> like you're yeah. the leader. Okay, you're Steph Curry, you lost game one, or you're Draymond, you know, the spiritual leader, you know, okay, so Draymond, what do you do um, in a situation where, you know, maybe people are scared, maybe you're scared, okay, we're down 1-0 in a seven game series, (laughs) to a young team that now is feeling pretty confident, they were pretty confident after that first game, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Just shooting lights out. The defense was extraordinary. Their energy, their size, just everything was just And then what did that
1: person tell us right before the game started? 72% of the time, the team that loses the first game loses the series. Exactly. Right? So they're looking at the math and they're like,
0: scary times. It's scary. So, okay. If you can admit that things are scary, it's not easy for everybody to admit. Um, But it is scary going into a, a game behind and, and facing that statistic, maybe not for Draymond or for Steph, because they're so confident, and so successful. But for somebody who was there for the first time, it is scary. So what do you do when you're scared? Okay, you got to make a plan. And you got to understand as the leader, that you are responsible for the emotional state, and for the plan executed by the team. Once you accept mm-hmm. that reality, that you are in control, you have agency the fear will come down a little bit in yourself. And then it will also come down in the team because they're going to vibe off of your vibe. And so what I've tried to do with my two teams, inside.com, you know, and launch, I take it very seriously. I got 50 plus mouths to feed across two teams. People are dependent. now. God, if I went away and these companies went away, would people survive? Of course they would. So I'm not being a narcissist about this, but people are at the current point, you know, working for me. So I take it seriously. I have to come up with a plan. The plan I came up with, people can come up with different plans is extreme focus, extreme professional development, and being 10% the 10% more efficient a month for three month plan. Mm -hmm. If we do that, well, why would we need and we stop hiring? uh, We pause hiring? Well, then why would we need to do layoffs? So we're thinking about hiring a couple of people here, but everybody got more efficient, and we stopped hiring. Okay, now, that actually signals like wait, we are doing more with less, and we're better at our jobs, and we feel more in control. And here's the thing if you give people a challenge, and they have something to do in an emergency situation, they have purpose. So job one, reduce fear, job two: have a plan, job three, um, have purpose. Okay, 123, got to address the fear, got to come up with a plan, you got to give people purpose. Uh, and, and here we go. We all know the purpose here, we're backing builders and inside, you know, we're trying to make people better at their jobs and make them more informed and solve their business problems. So but here we go. You know, you 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 got a plan, you're executing it, at least people can come to work and have something to do every day that feels productive. And in a vacuum, if you're a founder and you're not doing that, well, that would be like Draymond or Steph and Steve Kerr not getting everybody together during practice and saying, here's what we're going to do to get out of this one zero hole. Or here's how we're going to deal with their size. Here's how we're going to deal with their speed. Here's how we're going to deal with them shooting lights out. Here's how we contextualize whatever. So you got to communicate a whole bunch too. And that'll be like my sort of fourth overarching point is uh, over communicate. You, you can't say things once and expect people to internalize it. They can hear it, but internalizing something, Molly, and hearing it are two very different things. Yeah. When people internalize it, it kind of means when they're in the game, um, they're going to do it every play. You know what the perfect example of that is? The play of one Andrew Wiggins uh having talked to draymond about andrew wiggins and he talked about his podcast you know he, andrew wiggins sometimes you're like is is he in the game right it, yeah. is, you just have these like he'll have like one half or one quarter we spectacular another quarter you're like is, is he playing or not you know and he he might be maybe deferring to other people or whatever and draymond said on his podcast which is amazing the draymond green show just search for it on uh, youtube i mean it's like a must watch put the alarm bell on for of that subscribe and hit the bell he's incredible uh future of I think that is critical, uh, just a critical, um, you know, lesson there is he gave them a, a big speech, a big pep talk of every rebound matters, drive the basket, shoot the three when you're open. And just to remind Wiggins that like, hey, you belong here. I know there's three all-stars here, you know, but you belong here. You mm-hmm. have as much right to that three-point shot. You have as much right to dunk it, block it, take the game over because if they're doubling Steph or Clay's having an off night or Draymond's having an off night or whatever it is, they, they needed him. And I think there were two games where he was a, cr- one game for sure. He was,
1: he was a critical a factor in game yeah. five. Mm-hmm. I think
0: that was game five when, I, when he hit the, uh, we had like 13 rebounds. Yeah, just, and the game before that, he had 17 rebounds. Yeah. So he's had some just incredible stories. Anyway, that's, that's enough on that. Now is the time to get focused, everybody. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it competition for great engineering talent is really intense. We all know that. And a lot of startups are struggling to hire fast enough to keep up with their roadmap and the demands of their, you know, competitive space. You need to have great developers if you want to compete. And if you want to hire better developers, and you want to do it faster, you need a trusted source of pre vetted candidates. That's the key people you want to use lemon.io. They will tell you if this person's legit and if they should be working at your company. They have a network of engineers from Europe and Latin America, and every candidate has been tested and interviewed by their team. Here is how Lemon.io can make your engineering team bionic. No wasting time with unqualified candidates, easy access to global talent, plus they can get your developer up and running within a week. And of course, it's more affordable. At launch, we know Lemon.io is a great solution because our portfolio founders have used it. Okay, Drew Fabricant said Lemon.io was a game changer for his startup scout. Drew was under the gun to hire a developer with a very specific skill set. And Lemon.io delivered a great candidate quickly. And he says they were a pleasure to work with. So go to Lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off your first four weeks. Work harder. Work smarter you yeah. know, these two things and working smarter, the two best things I, you have anything under working smarter. The two best things I can think about the best things I've heard from my research, working smarter, time management, mm-hmm. professional development. Um, yeah. Those training, are the only right? professional development, fancy a way of saying training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think professional development is a better word for that. Cause training kind of keeps you in a little bit of a narrower box. Like here's how right. to use notion or Coda. Here's how to use Slack or, you know, whatever, better, you know, but uh professional development feels a little more holistic and like here's how to pick a company for like invest in. yeah. yeah. It's a little more growth, right? It, 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 so yeah. it, it feels less tactical. It includes tactical, but it also feels like bigger picture. So is there anything that you can think of other than those, than those two? The only thing that I would
1: add to that, and we've talked about this a little bit with OKRs and KPIs, right, is that yes. I... I base a lot of my efficiency calculations and you know, I'm obsessed with that on outcomes. Yeah. And so I think that in addition to all of that, to there's over communicating about process and improving people's processes to make sure they're more efficient. And then there's over communicating about the goals and measuring the outcomes. So it's like, look, we're doing this because X and we want to get to X or to Y. And so, and we'll be measuring X and Y, right? That this isn't all Mm -hmm. about like, And you have done a good job of saying this. This isn't about me looking at your calendar so that I can like add every minute up and be like, it's enough minutes. It's about saying, did we talk to this many companies? Did we get this many of those companies into our funnel, right? Did we actually convert those companies into investments because that's what makes us money? And I think that for me, at least being laser focused on outcomes helps me prioritize and be at the maximal efficiency.
0: You have... 30 years of experience, I think, or 25, maybe. And so, you start looking at that. Like, you can, I think you're so far along in your career and such an overachiever, you can look at the outcome and work towards it. And I think some people don't know how to work towards it, right? Oh, so, 100%. I think you know, the like, combination of both
1: is yes. actually out- is outstanding. Like, you do have to have that. And it's so valuable because people don't know. Like, my kid is super ADHD. He yeah. gets... A bunch of homework and f- panics and then yes. freezes. I mean, exactly this, right? Freezes, doesn't mm-hmm. know where to start. Like people yes. literally don't know how to start and yep. they don't know the 10 steps to take to get to the outcome. Yes. And then when they get those 10 steps, they're thrilled. It is No, it's, I, I'll, I, so I only, own. outcomes is additive, but giving people a framework to actually yeah. accomplish
0: those outcomes is magical. It's also it's magical. more work. It's more work for the, for the leader. So what I find is leaders can be lazy. Yes, and lazy and leaders like, just are get a major... Done. I don't care how. Well, see, so there you go. And so this yeah. is like a super productive discussion. If a lazy leader is like, here's the outcome I want. Hit 10 million in sales. Um, and, and, but you're saying like, hey, listen, I work to outcomes. Great. There are other salespeople. Not like, only. Like, no, 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 not only. Right, not only. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but you could work to the outcome without it. I have a sure. sale. I have, you know, two sales executives here who can work to an outcome. But they've also been sales executives for 20 years or so, 15, right. 20 years. I don't need to time block their schedules or time management them. They, they're just so like, you know, weathered and, you know, surly <laughs> and salty and, you know, battle tested. Like, these are my <laughs> guys. Sort of like having the Bad Batch or like, you know, Navy SEALs have been through like, they're like, yeah, it's my 16th tour. Like I've done, really, you don't know how many really people have grizzled. <laughs> they're just grizzled vets <laughs> of great. the, you know, it's Cold great. Wars or whatever. So you can just give them the outcome. Outcome is get Obama, get Osama bin Laden, and kill him if you can, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, if he comes back alive, great. If he doesn't come back alive, that's okay too. <laughs> eh. <laughs> he falls out of a plane. Always with and, the killing. Always. I'm just saying, with I'm going back to air. To, I, in that case, I came to aviation and air. And <laughs> if he falls out of the helicopter, yeah, that was a nice double whammy. Nice double yeah. whammy. I literally was talking to a guy. <laughs> I'm not going to say which unit oh, he was in. You know, it's like a late night discussion. He's like a really senior guy. We're a couple of McAllen 18 doubles in. And he's like, you know, sometimes people fall out of a jet you know, or, or a Black Hawk. You know, we were bringing them in. They didn't want to come in because they don't want to go to Guantanamo. They don't want to face the music. And sometimes, you know, people do crazy things like jump out of a plane. I was like, I do a jet. They we have to open the door <laughs> and you're in cuffs. He's like, you wouldn't believe what some people will do.
1: Do you mean that they extrajudicially jump out of place? And I'll just yeah. say
0: Dread is my favorite <laughs> science fiction film of the last 20 years, along with Prometheus. If you haven't seen Dread, it is extraordinary. If you haven't seen Dread, you can't understand Jason's management style. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. <laughs> I was like, Molly was like, let me mm-hmm. take this off live with you. And I literally just sent her the GIF from the Obi-Wan series <laughs> where Darth Vader <laughs> is walking like the caption on it. What was the caption? Look at your phone. What was the caption like? walking angrily it was like me,
1: or, no it was like me walking into slack this morning Hold yeah on, I, actually, I, I
0: tweeted it sorry i it was such a good oh yeah <laughs> it just says,
1: angry walking there's angry walking
0: it's the caption, is the, <laughs> caption. <laughs> the closed caption it's like i think you can tell darth vader is not happy he's his default angry is angry and, and when he's walking he's either walking surly or angry if, there's no delicate walking so anyway there's there's my little I mini management 100% micro lesson for you.
1: I love a ladder. I mm. love structure at yeah. work. And this is the reason. Because anybody structure is a ladder that anyone can climb. If you ah. give people a framework to be successful, mm. you actually equalize the opportunity. Mm. You take away the excuses, right? Got You're it. like, this is the structure in which you can succeed. And I have mm. given you the structure and done the work as a manager to create this structure. Yeah so that you can climb the ladder. And then it's up to you to climb the ladder. When I talk about outcomes, what I really mean is making those clear to people so they feel motivated in that direction when they get tired, because they will, because ladder climbing is hard.
0: (laughs) And then celebrating those outcomes. Absolutely, you got to celebrate them. So by some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in year one. That's why Microsoft created the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. This program provides founders at any stage with up to six figures in resources. Wait until you hear about this ridiculous list of perks. You're going to get up to $150,000 in Azure credits based on your stage and size. You're going to get free access to GitHub's enterprise tier, technical advice from experts at Azure and Microsoft Cloud, one to one mentorship from their mentor network, exclusive benefits and discounts from companies like OpenAI, huh? Very nice. And the best part is there are no fundraising requirements. So unlike others in the industry, the Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor backed or third party validated to sign up and access benefits. It's truly open to any founder, like it should be. And it's not about who you know. It's about what you're building. So any founder at any stage can get up to six figures of value by signing up at aka.ms slash This Week in Startups. Take a minute to write this down. aka.ms slash This Week in Startups. No spaces, no dashes. Make sure you use that URL so they know you're a fan of the show. All right, everybody. Next up is my interview with Jesse Powell. He is the CEO of and founder of Kraken. And Kraken is, um, you know, a crypto exchange. So having him on the show during the, you know, what potentially is the biggest crypto meltdown we've ever seen, uh, I think it, most people would argue that's, this is the biggest in terms of dollar amounts, maybe not the biggest in percentage for, for each drawdown, because we have seen a 90% drawdown before in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, just to frame it. Um, so that would, was just great to have him on. But this is, he came on two days after, I think Tuesdays when this New York Times piece came out. Some people might say it's a hit piece, but a piece about the culture at Kraken, which is a very unique culture. Molly. Uh, you got an early copy of the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on my technique or just, you know, the, the, the story you obviously worked at the New York Times. We had some discussions about the, you know, just a general negative, maybe overly negative view of tech from the New York Times itself these days or going for clicks. Where do you think this story hit uh, on that? If you have an opinion on it, uh, you don't have to. Yeah. And, uh, maybe just generally how I handle the interview because we're going to be solo doloing interviews for a bit here. So we can get more interviews to the audience. Maximum efficiency.
2: Yeah, I
1: I thought it was a really interesting interview. I think that, uh, you know, I mean,
0: Hmm.
1: I think we are definitely at a time when because things are so polarized and because there is this kind of this fits into a little bit of what we were talking about the other day when I was like, the thing is a lot of these uh, crypto CEOs went out in the world and acted like jerks in various ways. Sure. And I it is not even necessarily the case that I mean, Jesse Powell, when I say that, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a there is a reputation that has led to a lack of benefit of the doubt.
0: Yes. And then crypto has said to people, and and we have no evidence that Jesse did this, but crypto people writ large, uh, use toxicity, have fun being poor. We don't get it. Okay, boomer as their rallying cry. So now on the way down, You know, people are just like, we told you, Uh, and they also didn't produce enough value in the world with their products or services. And there was a lot of grifting and crime going on. Again, not not Jesse, but just that's the, that is the perception.
1: And I wouldn't even say, right, even if it's writ small, that is the backdrop to the fact that this benefit of the doubt, I think has been lost. Hmm. And then on top of that, and I, I, it was very interesting, because I thought you did a, I thought you did a really good job having a very honest conversation with him. And that he did a good job of sort of making himself sound really rational and libertarian. And the thing is, and we have talked about this a million times, it's very easy for someone who's like a wealthy white guy to have a perfectly rational, libertarian, emotionless, Spock-like
0: approach to issues that cause people real harm. Yeah, you're not getting pulled over by the cops because you're a white crypto dude. Right. (laughs) You're but not
1: getting shot by your domestic partner because you broke up with them, right? You're yeah. not like, there are all of these sort of issues that are wrapped up within this. And th- that kind of fundamentally, I think is like, so if you already don't have the benefit of the doubt, mm. you do have a media environment right now that is just like, because the fact is most so much of the time when people say anti-woke, mm. what they mean is like, I don't want to talk so much about black people. I'm just not into that, right? Yeah. I'm over it. I'm overhearing that. And then you've got a guy like Jesse who's like, Believe whatever you want mm. and say whatever you want, unless the thing that you believe and say is I am offended by the fact that conversations like this are happening at work yeah. in Slack channels that work set up. I think that he finds himself in the same position that Twitter found itself in, which is like mm. there was no moderation. Then ah. there was a correction for an environment that had gotten incredibly toxic and yep. the correction caused a huge backlash. Yes.
0: Yes. So this, And I think is he finds himself
1: in a very similar position and also just doesn't have any kind of uh, empathy for the fact that like on the other side of the equation, there's him being like, yeah, I'm a philosophy major. I just love to talk about this in an intellectual way. Yeah. That for a lot of people, it's not intellectual. It's actual
0: real life and it can suck for them. I, I was talking before about my emotion in being a performer and how like I, you know, even my performance and I would like to think that, you know, I'm Spock-like at times, or I could be driven just perfectly by a logic, but Mm -hmm. it does matter to me, you know, uh, if people tell me, hey, that was a great interview, and like, talking to you about my interview technique, actually, I respect your opinion, it it matters to me, there is, emotion is part of life, right? And so, there there is a group of people who are like, you're being too emotional, your feelings don't matter, you know, like it's Ben Shapiro's catchphrase or whatever, right? It's easy to have that opinion, as you're saying, if you emotionally have not been destroyed (laughs) by. You know whatever uh you faced in life over some long extended period of time, and this is where empathy comes in um and there is no benefit of the doubt, and so everything is so polarized. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing I think is we're now getting to the point where people are writing culture docs. I think that I always yeah. think about how do we move forward, and one of the things that I think is how we move forward is the recognition that not everybody has to think the same not, not everybody has to. Not every workplace has to be the same. Yeah. Now, this should seem super obvious to people, but we have not been, I think, considered about this um, as entrepreneurs or in the capitalist society. We kind of just run these companies, you know, typically like pirates. It's my ship, my rules. I'm yeah. Darth Vader, my Death Star. Here we go. <laughs> and, you know, I'm guilty right. of that as well. And, and it's personal. Of course, it's personal. Yes, yeah, 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 My totally. ship. I am the captain of this mm-hmm. ship. I built this ship. I picked the crew. I'm shackleton. Right. We're going to the North Pole. We might die, but we all decided to go on this journey together, and I'm responsible for everybody. Yada yada. Totally. But here's a little punch up there. Be up front and consider in explaining this to people mm-hmm. when they go on the voyage with you. And on the converse side, as an employee. Be thoughtful about where you go to work and where you continue work. Because the the captain could change gears, they they could send the ship in a different direction, they could change their style, uh, they could lose their mind, anything's possible. So both parties have to buy in. That's one of the beautiful things about how America set up its uh, employment law. It's at will. Either party Mm -hmm. can leave at any time for any reason or no reason at all. You can fire anybody in your company for no reason. With severance, not severance, whatever you negotiated with them on the way in, um, and there's slight jurisdiction caveats there, like if you do a factory shutdown, or you let go of a certain number of people, there's a factory shutdown caveat, talk to your lawyers always before you do any HR things. But we are at an at will society, and everybody has to double opt in. So being clear on the way in, you're going to go into a slack room, or a slack instance, and there's going to yeah. be a room with people talking about guns. Why would he have a gun room at work? I don't have a gun room at work. Why would he have a, you know, let's debate gender and pronouns. Let's debate this. Right. I, like he wants on to him. debate. That's on him. It's his decision. It's, it's his company. It, it okay, is. Work. Yes, I would However,
1: it. maybe yeah. it might be productive to move into a mode where there are, in fact, best practice frameworks for how to do work at a job. Yeah, right. Like, because we've made everything so kind of like ego driven, and it's mm-hmm. one captain and that captain sets the whole culture on the way down or whatever. Like, maybe it would actually be useful to say, hey, um, all throughout history. <laughs> Yeah, companies that have worked well have done these things, right? People yeah. write business books about them. There's like books True. from CEOs and whatever. And every it's like everybody, like a Jesse comes in, or somebody comes in, and they're like, I'm going to do everything completely different from True. how business has ever been done, because yeah. I'm right. Yeah. I and mean, then they're like, and that's the deal. And if you don't like it, you know, you can say whatever
0: you want at work stuff. unless you say good stuff. Unless we put you the say photos in the prospectus as one right? because nobody done it that's why we did it that's why we did it that's why so we it's did like, it rivka there's explain. just there's explain no rivka. universe in which there's no
1: universe in which it's believable to be like my philosophy is you can say whatever you want but if you don't like the part where people say whatever they want then that doesn't count as saying whatever you want and you should quit like that's right. just like it's logically inconsistent and you should just run a business like a business. And you know what smart businesses do? They don't have gender debate rooms and gun chat rooms at work that do make people feel unsafe. And in fact, there are laws about feeling unsafe at work. Like, it's just like, right. come on, man. You're what?
0: trying to invent your You're counter. trying to turn your company into a society. And it's okay, okay. actually work. I will give the counter. Many people on the other side said, well, you know, BLM matters to me. This social injustice matters to me. The war in the Russian war in Ukraine. That matters to me. So everybody's got their short list of what matters to them. Mm-hmm. The folks uh, who are passionate about BLM or Ukraine uh, or Taiwan or the Uyghurs like I am, they want to talk about it at work. And they don't know why, you know, Brian's saying you can't talk about it at work. So you have two crypto companies. It always mm-hmm. It's always the crypto companies. These people uh-huh. are unique in the world. <laughs> you have Brian <laughs> saying, Hmm. <laughs> Do not discuss anything but crypto at work. Now you got Jesse saying, we're going to have a room for everything. Mm -hmm. But where he came to in this, and this is why I think this is a really good interview to listen to. It's a really good interview. Please listen to it. Where he came to was, if you want to talk, he shut some of these rooms down, by the way, because he was like, practically speaking, it's, it's becoming too chaotic. I did it to have a philosophical discussion, but he recognizes to your point, Molly this is hurtful to some people or triggering to some people. And I'm not using triggering in like a diminishing kind of way. Right. Like you it's could real. be triggered. I mean, if you make me watch nine 11 videos. I will be triggered. I'm using triggered, yep. not in a diminishing way. Um, I will use triggered in a diminishing way and <laughs> sometimes, but in this <laughs> case not. I'm not. <laughs> He'll specify every time <laughs> I'll specify <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a parody or irony hashtag. I would not, you know, if you if you're gonna show me videos of people dying on 9-11, please give me a trigger warning. I don't want to watch the videos. It really is hurtful to me and it, it just makes me feel sad. And I don't want to feel sad. So on 9-11, I don't turn the TV on and I don't, I just think about that day and you know, because it, it's too triggering for me. Yeah. So what he came to was if you want to participate, and I thought this was actually like a real evolution of his thinking. Um, and I kind of appreciated it, it might steal it. He said, if you want to chime in on the discussion about I don't know, they had one issue, like, should we ask for pronouns during the interview process? I, I don't have the answer to this question, because some people were offended that they were asking for this. And other people thought it was great. And so you know, if, and he made an interesting point, like, if you're in a Muslim country, and you're like, Are you a man or a woman, people are gonna be like, what? <laughs> like, you, you can't ask that in Saudi Arabia, or you know, whatever country he's working in. And some people in America, in the south, or wherever in the middle of America might be turned off by that question, people in the, you know, coastal places you know, largely might be inspired that you asked that question. Uh, what's my pronoun? Um, what he said was, if you want to chime in on the pronoun a bit, write a five-page position paper. Take a day, cite your research, mm-hmm. and you, anybody in the company can participate if you write up five pages. I thought, wow. Think about what he just did there. What a great evolution. Put aside whether you think, whatever you think of Jesse. I thought this was a really good punch-up. If you are thoughtful enough to write up your five-page paper, the team that's handling that, HR, recruiting, human capital, the chief operating officer, will read your paper. Mm -hmm. And they'll read the other four people's people pages people write and bring it together. He said he would. Yeah, he he said said he he would read them all. Mm -hmm. To be clear, he said the CEO would read it. Yes. And he'll read it and he'll have a conversation with you about it. So he basically just said the benchmark for participation in this discussion is thoughtfulness and research. I kind of love that. I kind of love that. Definitely. I don't know. I don't, I I, mean, yeah, people may definitely. not want to give him any credit. Look, I think
1: but, yeah. It, it's a really good interview and you should listen. And he is pretty thoughtful. I think this idea of what, and, and there is no doubt that companies have culture. Yeah. Industries have culture. Yeah. And there is also the reality that, for example, the culture of an entire industry perpetuates yeah. stereotypes and harm. And, you know, and that saying <laughs> we only want these kinds of people to work here and not these kinds of people. Will yeah. create for you a company that might end up missing business opportunities because it has created a very specific culture that over time will become homogenous. So, listen: Which, if that's the company yeah. that you want to build, because you're that kind of pirate, go crazy. But you may be here's it may be the, bad for business. It's such in a the good, long term.
0: I think it's such a good observation. And and here's the thing that we don't know. Yeah, capitalism is a competition. Yep. Yeah. nature is a competition. Darwinism human beings are competitive by their nature and their performance goes up in a competition, period, full stop. Totally. If that is the case, (laughs) we're not running an experiment at one company, talk about anything, at another company, talk about nothing and everything in between, we might actually find that some companies that are solely focused outperform, and other ones that have, you know, Jesse's approach, everybody can talk about it's a philosophy, he's a philosopher. They might actually get beat by Coinbase, right? Right. So, yeah, we don't know. We're, we're gonna find. Nobody knows. And the, I'll tell you the one thing that is a little bit scary in all this: what if a homogenous group outperforms a diverse group? That's the thing I'm a little worried about here. Uh, if I'm being completely yeah. honest, like a group think, a bunch of Stanford computer yeah. science nerds get together and do PayPal, and they're all weirdos, which is what the the PayPal mafia said they were. They were unemployable. Mm-hmm. Like Sax has said this all the time. We were just unemployable, weird thinking nerds from Stanford. And we, we kind of hired our friends. Performance in the short term might actually go up. And well, then yeah, the you short have term, culture.
1: And there's proving the negative, right? There's yeah. the, the fundamental, you're, you're, it's like, there is no counterfactual because we don't know what PayPal would have been like, had it mm. also had some people in the executive ranks who were like, hey, this, we should also target the unbanked or we should, tar- you yeah. know, we should like reach out to this segment or whatever. Mm. It's it's so it's hard to know the difference. But what I think what we do know is that at work, as arguably with countries like mm. direct democracy doesn't work. No, that's not going to companies work, yeah. aren't democracies. They shouldn't be. No, They're not no. direct democracies where everybody gets an equal vote and you do what everybody says. That's just actually like, The thing that we are forgetting, I think, in some ways, in our kind of, like, rush to make sure everybody feels good, is that, like, hierarchy Mm. is real. You have to have a boss. Some people are in charge. The people who are in charge are, in fact, allowed to set the rules of the ship. And you have to follow them.
0: Mm. That's true. Nobody wants to go to a restaurant where it's a democracy. More salt. Less salt. No eggs. Extra yolk. (laughs) It's like it's not going to be a good meal. (laughs) You know, need to have somebody, was a, nobody wants to see a movie where everybody on the team voted and you know, equal for every input. line.
1: Right. And there, but a, there's a
0: big difference between
1: a monoculture and a like messy direct democracy, right? It's sort of like, there's yeah. a lot of Delta.
0: There's a lot, there. of, a lot of shades delta. in between this black and white. It's not a black and white. It's a lot of gray in between. All right, everybody, not enjoy gray. this great interview. And thanks, Molly, for chopping it up with me on the pre-interview. <laughs> Longest intro interview ever. Enjoy. That's okay. I think it was Love good. It. Enjoy everybody. Hey, everybody. Next up on the program uh, is the founder of Kraken. Kraken is a crypto exchange platform. You may have heard of them similar to Coinbase or Binance. And uh, Jesse Powell is the CEO and founder. And he's having probably one of the most uh, interesting slash challenging weeks of his career. Uh Total complete crypto meltdown this week, and uh, you got some unique coverage in the New York Times. How are you uh, holding up? And I appreciate you coming on the show.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm um, doing pretty well, actually. Uh, you know, the the New York Times, quote unquote, hit piece actually turned out to be more of a, a fantastic uh, recruiting advertisement. So um, oh, we've wow. got a lot of uh, great inbound candidates uh, out of that. And um, yeah, I think things, things turned out pretty well.
0: All right, fantastic. Let's start with just where the crypto market is, and then we'll get into the New York Times story because getting to have you here with your insights is just a treat uh, in terms of your understanding of the crypto market. It seems to me there's been a bit of a contagion. Uh, You have, you know, this started a couple of weeks ago with Luna uh, and Terra going under the so called stable coin. Uh, Obviously, we've had a retreat in the price of Bitcoin. That's been quite dramatic, and all other cryptos. Well, if, for people who have a cursory knowledge of what's happening in crypto, h- how big of a deal is this current drawdown compared to the other ones? Because there is this concept in crypto that, hey, this is uh, a volatile asset class, an emerging asset class, and these things do happen. Is this just like the other ones, or is it different?
3: Well, we're not down 90% yet, so I think we're doing pretty good um you know this is really is really nothing historically in the terms of uh, drawdowns of of bitcoin or uh ether um you know across the whole market i mean everything's everything is down right this is not just contained to to cryptocurrency the whole market is down 80% so um it's not surprising to see this you know when when the uh, equities markets are down people tend to sell off their crypto positions in order to cover uh their equities margin mm-hmm. and um you know we've seen this many times before uh, you know, for me and for people who have been in the industry for a decade, uh, this is nothing new. Um, I'm still holding, haven't sold any coins. Uh, so actually I'm, I'm waiting to buy at 20,000. So hopefully we get there. Uh, hopefully too many people don't get liquidated on the way, but you know, I'm, I'm ready to buy more at these levels.
0: Explain to myself and the audience, um, this concept of leveraging crypto and staking. It seems like people are aggressively utilizing. Some of the new features of this virtual currency this you know uh, digital money to do interesting things like get fifteen percent of their money by staking it um, or levering up their crypto and then automatically having it liquidated. It does seem like a bunch of that has been happening, and of course you know this has to do with inflation, the recession, the Ukraine, all of that contagion, but it does seem that the velocity in Crypto can be a little bit faster, I think, because maybe people are chasing returns. Am I correct? Uh,
3: for sure, that's what people are borrowing the money for. Mostly, um, some people just want to borrow because they don't want to sell their crypto because of the tax implications of it. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're holding Bitcoin, you might feel like, well, Bitcoin's going up. You know, Bitcoin's going to go up at least twenty percent every year for the next right. ten years. And so, I would be happy to borrow against my Bitcoin at ten percent a year if I think mm. that's going to happen, and not have to realize the tax. Uh, hit on that and, um, you know, still be able to hold my Bitcoin long term. So uh, there's a lot of that going on. Um, but yeah, as you said, there's there's a lot of leverage as well. People are borrowing to trade. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think everyone is getting squeezed right now uh, who is borrowing. Obviously, if you were borrowing in something that wasn't really stable or your collateral was in something that wasn't really as stable as you thought, uh, you know, you're, you're in pretty bad shape right now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of getting levered up um but you know that's do just you one provide of.
0: that service at kraken to to give people leverage and and how do you think about it as an offering because let's face it a lot of people are new market entrants uh obviously Robinhood, i was an early angel investor in, had to deal with a little bit of this customer education mm-hmm. they see they can take a you know get a little bit of leverage they put it to work and you know we were in a 13 year up market so do you provide these services and then how do you think about them and then how do you think about you know, uh, if somebody is qualified to actually use these and do they need to be qualified or is it just buyer beware?
3: Yeah. In the United States, um, you have to be what's called an ECP, Mm. uh, to, um, to trade with margin, uh, which is basically you have to have like a net worth of $10 million or more. And uh, you have to answer some questions about your sophistication, Mm. uh, outside of the United States, the, the, the questions and the restrictions vary. Uh, but, For spot crypto trading, we offer up to 5x leverage and only on really the the more liquid pairs. Uh, It's not available on everything. So we don't let you do like 100x leverage uh, for trading Bitcoin.
0: Got it. So if you have Bitcoin, you got a a $30,000 coin, you could put 150k to work. But that means if what percentage of that has to come down from 30,000 to what before you trigger you have to cover?
3: Yeah. So it, there's kind of a formula that depends on kind of like the market volatility, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but basically, if you were borrowing at 5x leverage, um, we liquidate at like a 40% margin level. So um, it would have to come down, you know, 60%. And, and it, I mean, your whole total account value. So, you know, we value yeah. the whole equity of the account. So um, you know separate from and, and almost every asset counts for some collateral value. Mm-hmm. So even if you just had like a long Bitcoin position, um, you know, we, we wouldn't just be looking at that position in isolation and be looking at the total value of the count coming down to, you know, like a 40% level.
0: Got it. So if you're at a, if you had levered it up to $150,000 worth of Bitcoin, hey, if it starts going down, you're going to start selling some of the Bitcoin or uh, at some point all of it, I guess, to yeah. cover the loan. Yeah, um, exactly. And. Is that something we've seen over the last couple of weeks? Is that happening to a lot of users? Or is this, you know, low single digit percentage is just ballpark? Is it half of users have leverage on or a third of users 10%. It's, a,
3: it's pretty small. It's it's way it's, you know, probably like five to 10% of Got users it. use leverage. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority and vast majority are just retail
0: customers who just want to buy and hold Bitcoin. Mm. Um, I would assume though, those 5%, if they are, you know, these, uh, ECPs, you know, kind of like qualified purchasers, like really sophisticated people, they would have bigger positions. So it might be yeah. only five to 10%, but it might be a larger position of the Bitcoins you hold in aggregate. Mm-hmm. So, um, what does it look like from here going forward? Uh, uh, we have the buy side has essentially gone away. It seems like the whales are holding. The people who are hodlers they they're used to this they hold through it it looks like a lot of the people who bought recently i've I've seen some people covering um like the age of the wallets and then the, the mm-hmm. paper hands new wallets seem to sell when things go down and the old ones seem to hold or then eventually accumulate so what mm-hmm. are you seeing in regards to that are people starting to accumulate yet or is it just we're still in that hodl pattern
3: yeah um i i think we're starting to see some accumulation. Um, but I think people are also, you know, biding their time. The guys that have had Bitcoin for a long time, I think they feel like they don't need to increase their position, Mm. but if the price is right, they will. And so, um, you know, people that are, you know, they're holding on to like, you know, 50,000 Bitcoin or something like that, you know, buying another thousand Bitcoin doesn't really, uh, change the the structure of their portfolio, but, um, I, you know, some are kind of ready to do it. You know, I personally have my buy order in at 20,000. So, I'm just waiting. If it doesn't hit that level, that's fine. I feel I feel good about it. If it hits it, great. You know, I'll I'll take Bitcoin at at what I think is like a steep discount.
0: Why has Bitcoin been, uh, you know, of all the cryptocurrencies in your mind, so resilient? Is it is is it a a technical reason? Is it that it got the largest base of intelligent holding users? Does it have, you know, the best architecture? When we look at the entire market coming apart, you know, dramatically, uh, you know, it's off. From the peak of what 69 70 k it may have hit at the peak last year, and it's down from whatever 40,000 40, earlier this year. Um, why does it have staying power? Like why hasn't it gone down to ten or fifteen? Well, we've
3: seen we've seen pullbacks like that
0: uh, in in the past. You know, there was a time
3: where we went from thousand uh, dollars down to under a hundred dollars.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, the 90% so, pullback,
3: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like unheard of and it's still possible. I think mm-hmm. over time, these pullbacks get smaller. And um, I think people continue to see that, you know, a- anytime someone's thinking about buying Bitcoin, I say, look, like, can you hold it for five years? If not, then, you know, maybe you want to think about how much you put in because it could drop 50% tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the chart over the last decade, I mean, it's just outperforming everything else. So if you've got yeah, when a you term- zoom
0: back, you, you get a pretty good view of it. Yeah. What, what about regulation? Um, you operate uh, in America with us uh, customers, a lot of your contemporaries, maybe less so, or maybe they have two company structures, you have to compete with a group of people who are offshore, you, you're more regulated, talk to me about the state of regulation, what, what regulation is working for you uh, running Kraken? what regulation do you wish existed today to kind of even the playing field maybe? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so, you know, we, we do have our ultimate parent company in the US. Uh, we have a US operating entity and we also have entities around the world uh, that serve their local jurisdictions, you know, for example, in Japan, we have an entity right. there that has licenses there that serves that uh, jurisdiction. Um, yeah, you know, I think that the problem with regulation in the United States right now is that there's still a lot of uncertainty You know, 13 years on for Bitcoin, we still don't have clarity on some things. And uh, the CFTC is fighting with the SEC about who's going to regulate it with with uh, FinCEN and the states. You know, everyone is sort of this land grab for like who's going to who's going to regulate it. And everyone can make the argument that crypto fits into their bucket. Mm. So you end up with like 20 different regulators for the same thing. And, um, you know, the SEC is talking about laws that were created 80 years ago, pre-internet and trying to apply those to crypto. And, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. So I think we need, you know, you can't ask the regulator to change their mind. You know, their, their job is to enforce and they will tell you, you know, if you don't like the law, go talk to the legislators, legislators. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do. Trying to lobby to get the laws changed, to get clarity there. um, from the regulators perspective their job is just like
0: you know put notches in their belt and you know collect skulls so uh, what would be what the would be great? what clarity would you most like to see if, if you could have one or two things to get really good clarity on here in the united states what would those be
3: i would love to have one regulator for crypto great. um you know just totally clear like no disputed territory uh and i would love to have clarity around like what actually is how are the assets classified? You know, like look, there's over ten thousand coins out there, and so it might be too much to ask the regulator to go coin by coin and do an analysis for us, but just some clarity on you mm. know like we do an analysis ourselves and we try to decide you know is this is this a, a security or not? Is it a commodity uh is it a currency? you know and we do that for for a lot of countries to try to determine you know what are the rules that are going to apply to a particular asset. Uh, it's a huge lift for us. And even when we do that, there's no way to have absolute certainty. Mm. Um, And I think there needs to be some kind of uh, just like a reasonable safe haven or sandbox or something where if a regulator hasn't come out and said like, this is illegal, Mm. that you can just fall back on your analysis. If you've you've made a reasonable effort to determine uh, the situation, then I think that should be good enough. Uh, Now, as it is, you know, we've seen the case of Ripple, um, the SEC came after them, you know, seven, eight years after they had been operating all this time. Yeah. And, you know, to say, hey, like, I mean, they even had conversations all along the way with the SEC. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to for them to come back, you know, seven, eight years later and say, oh, that's stuff you've been doing all this time that we knew about all this time. Now we have a problem with it. You know, yeah, that that's
0: suboptimal. Of, yeah, they, they should give them clarity qu- earlier on before they build this business, for sure. Absolutely.
3: I mean, and but that kind of contingent liability is extremely chilling. Imagine you're thinking yeah. about investing in a, in a, a project or a, a crypto company, and you got to think, wow, stuff that happened eight years ago, could the SEC could just decide that that stuff was illegal. And, yeah. you know, the fines are, are astronomical.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, could possibly include jail time if this is Absolutely. a security and you're doing, if you're selling it as it's a utility token, nobody's, the people who are buying it are buying it for speculative reasons to see it go up. I think that test matters too, doesn't it? Like, what is the intent of the person buying it? Yeah. You, would, you would agree that that matters too. Um, and I think that's where this all gets kind of um, a little muddy because majority of people buying XRP are buying it to see it go up. And maybe they're buying some story. XRP is going to become uh, the money exchange of the future. They're building software for banks. and But that's not why they're buying it. They're not using it for that reason. It's not a, a utility token for them. They're buying it as a security in my mind, like to as if they're buying into XRP. Um and then it would be better if they, I think, had marketed it as a security and just followed securities law. But again, it wasn't a clear situation. I think that's your point, right? Yeah. It's just I mean, give them clarity.
3: The the problem with the securities laws, and you know, I would be I'm hesitant to agree with you that that it oh. would be a security technically, but uh, the problem with the securities laws is it's just extremely limiting. I mean, you know, from from being an early stage investor that there are all these rules about how you raise capital when you're selling yep. securities. And, uh, you know, generally, you can't just go out and get money from, from the little guy who no. and, you know, I was out raising money for Kraken back in, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. And all of Silicon Valley was like, what is Bitcoin? Why should I care about it? How is yeah. this thing ever going to work? How is this not going to get shut down? And so we ended up doing our, our, our round largely from from early crypto investors, you know, yeah. early angels that really believed in in Bitcoin. And so yeah. I think like, there's, there's a place in the world for, uh, you know, individuals to be able to invest in things and not, you know, I mean, you know, the the um, accredited investor thing is just insane that you have to
0: That is the craziest have have a, thing. Yeah, it's like your money. You should have some agency, I think the easiest thing in the world, and I've, you know, I've talked to the, about this for God going on close to a decade. Now, we license people to drive a car, we license people to cut hair, we have all kinds of tests for being a sanitation engineer, a teacher, etc. If you want to invest in risky, alternative assets, how about a 75 question test it doesn't have to be series seven. Could be something you read a book, uh, like a, I, I was thinking. Uh, you you scuba dive at all? You you Patty certified by chance? No. Like if you scuba dive, you, you got to read a book. You got to answer questions. You go on a couple of dives. It's not, it's not hard by any, but it's it does take a day or two, you know, basically two days. So mm-hmm. read a book, take some quizzes, do some actual practical applications. I wouldn't that be the easiest thing in the world if they just we had a financial literacy driver's license where people understood the concept of. Diversification, the concepts of a risky asset, concepts of accounting and debt and different types of stock and what's senior to other stock, right? Uh, yeah. This would be the easiest yeah. way to do it in the world.
3: I um, completely agree. And I would be happy to just call everything a security yeah. if we can get past this accredited investor thing. And, and like, let's do a license, let's put in a test, let's require a day of education, Easy. whatever. Like, let's well, online let's not... education,
0: pretty simple. Yeah. Take a course online for fifty bucks. Maybe Kraken would sponsor Coinbase or Robinhood would certainly, you know, do it for free for you. And for sure. you know, everybody puts up videos, and we just—I mean—that's one of the things I think that crypto and Robinhood and the day trading and stonks and all this stuff don't get enough credit for. This next generation feels incredibly literate when it comes to finance. I think mm-hmm. you would agree. Yeah. Um, now they may be making some pretty speculative bets, but that's kind of how you learn. I mean, if you you play poker at all,
3: yeah. Yeah, you got to take some bad beats. Uh so.
0: he takes a, all of a sudden you start learning a lot about variance when your aces get cracked, you yeah. know, and it, and if yeah. it happens to you two or three times in a row, you're like, "Okay, now I understand what a f- 20%, you know. Now I understand what 80/20 means or 70/30." People were shocked when Trump won. And I was talking to Nate Silver, he gave him whatever 15 and then it became 30% chance, and people were shocked Nate got it wrong. I'm like, "I think he did say it had 30% chance." Like, have yeah, you not flipped coins? That's a pretty good <laughs> shot, like yeah, And with two cards to come, you know, you have a couple of things here, which agent, you mentioned agencies, like pick it, pick an agency. Do you have a preference for which agency would be most qualified or maybe the creation of a new one?
3: I think the creation of a new one would probably be best, uh, which would come with just brand new, brand new laws. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, they would have a dedicated understanding of the market. Um, you know, these other guys are, they're distracted, you know, they're covering, they're covering a lot of stuff and, mm-hmm. um, they generally don't have the expertise to, to evaluate this stuff. Um, you know, they kind of come with, with their own interpretation of it, which is really, you know, a layman's interpretation in most cases. They require a tremendous, tremendous amount of education. Um, and so I think a dedicated organization would probably be the best way to go. My second choice would probably be, uh, the CFTC, which I think is used to, to, Regulating things, I, I think they're a bit more open and uh, they're a bit closer to the things that, you know, kind of the currency and commodity aspect of of crypto, which I think, I think most of the coins are closer to that than they are to securities like, you know, stocks, like, you know, shares of companies. Um, and, you know, there's overlap with the CFTC and, you know, all this energy stuff, you know, that. Uh, that plays into this so i I feel like they would probably be the best regulator if we can't get a, a dedicated
0: one let's touch on stable coins uh we had the algorithmic one lunaterra collapse there's uh tether uh which has had a very mixed reputation some securities action against them canada new york state um and they do very light attestations basically a screenshot of like how much money they have in the bank at one moment in time and there's been this never-ending speculation of mm-hmm. hey maybe they didn't run the company perfectly in the beginning and then this other speculation that maybe they did so well you know in terms of what they placed bets on that they have more than enough in reserves but maybe they're you know the speculation that maybe they're covering up kind of how they got there, but they're, they're very um, opaque, let's say, and then you have mm-hmm. us um, DC, I guess, Jeremy Allaire's, uh stable coin here in America. I think he's doing a pretty great job of keeping it super regulated and, and auditing stuff. Um, how should these coins work? Because you have one complete utter failure. You have one that people are really concerned about. And then you have Jeremy's, which seems, you know, much tighter, and maybe he's taking it, you know, a little more seriously. Are you concerned about Tether and maybe tell us what happened with Luna and then we'll go to USDC.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of FUD about Tether over the years. Um, I think the Bitfinex guys, uh, and the Tether guys have, have just proven over the years that, that they can handle a crisis. I mean, I have no reason knowing what I know about, about their business, uh, just as another exchange. Um, I feel pretty confident that those guys are profitable and probably doing pretty well. Um, so I'm not personally worried about it. Um, you know, I think there was some incident where they had like $800 million, like confiscated by yeah. the government from this crypto capital collapse thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think that was like really their fault. That was like, you know, another custodian that they were using, uh, basically got, you know, I guess like rated or something. So, um, anyway, I, I, I. I think unless they've completely mismanaged everything behind the scenes, that that they've got to have like more than enough money. Of course, I would never
0: like personally vouch for anything because I, I haven't right, seen you anything. Know. You know, like well, that isn't that the problem. Uh, do you think these stablecoins should have to do audits if they're going to present themselves as like we're dollar by dollar backed? Like an audit seems reasonable to me. Would you be in favor of that?
3: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I feel like they have done some audits i don't know if they're to the extent that circle or attestations or, uh, you know? is
0: what they've done where they yeah. kind of group together in a two-page pdf and then somebody in the cayman Islands says hey yeah we saw this amount of monies in the account mm-hmm. um so it's very very you know not detailed and i think the issue was hey they had a lot of this uh, commercial paper mm-hmm. which i guess yeah. pays a high uh dividend you know and a high coupon and
3: yeah they say something like they, they're, they're not holding actual physical dollars in a vault. It's like dollar equivalent assets. Yeah. So that's where it gets a
0: little bit scary. Yeah. Um, so then let's do the other two. We've got two other sides of spectrum. We got tether, you know, it's a little bit of a a black box, but Luna, Mm -hmm. complete collapse. Yep. When people are looking at that in the crypto space, it seems like a lot of people saw this coming and they thought algorithmic stable coins were, I don't want to say a scam, but Mm -hmm. maybe not sound or well, well I mean, architected or didn't make sense? What did you think when you heard the concept and were you shocked when you saw it implode?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's an attraction to stable coins, uh, to these algo stable coins because, you know, the idea is that you pegged to something that is presumably stable, uh, like, you know, until recently, let's say, maybe like the dollar. Yeah. Um, and, and, but you don't have to have dollars in a bank account. You need no, you need no connection to, the physical world into the legacy yeah. banking system but you have something that is like kind of resembling uh the dollar in terms of like its value and stability and um you know that's that's pretty attractive because i mean the ultimate dream is just that we completely escape the legacy system and you know there's no kind of central guy controlling a bank account somewhere uh, that it's all just you know algorithmically automatically determined so I see the attraction to that, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, how how you come up with this algo and what are the oracles that you're using to determine, you know, the the source of truth, basically? Like, you know, what is actually, you know, they're all using some kind of numbers that they're getting from somewhere, and those sources could could be flawed or manipulated in some way. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's just like you know, if you were if you were trading a, a futures contract or something like that, you know, you'd want to use like an index. You wouldn't want to just say like the price according to jason you know Mm -hmm. on this day um so yeah they're they're definitely i I think more risky than um something like usdc which is just like you know basically dollars in a bank account um because the the, something could always happen with the algo yeah um are you seeing a
0: trend happening where people are maybe going to usdc because it feels like it's um more stable and more trustworthy? Is that happening? Yeah. Yeah, in the absolutely. industry?
3: USDC has gained a lot of traction over the last few years. Um, it, it's, you know, I think most people probably see it as, as good as dollars. Um, you know, certainly I personally, I trust Jeremy. I, I think he's running, you know, really, a really great operation. Um, if I had to keep my dollars in something, it would be USDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think that a lot of people are, Attracted to it being U.S. based, it being regulated. You know, Jeremy's got a great reputation.
0: He's out there. He's well known. Um, yeah, he's going on CNBC. He came on this podcast. He's willing to yeah. talk. Whereas when you the, the Tether CEO is nowhere to be found. I did have Do kwan on from um, Luna, and uh, I couldn't understand it. It was one of those moments where I'm like, I, you know, I I invest for a living, and I'm having a hard time understanding who's where. The fifteen percent staking has come from coming from. So yeah. let's let's hit staking. <laughs> When you hear this, like you're getting 15% and it's being staked, is this believable? Um, and, you know, where does the 15% interest come from? Because that seems like a unique offering in all the world. And and do you participate in staking? Or how do you think about it at Kraken and offering those kind of services or access yeah. to those services?
3: Yeah, we do have staking at Kraken. Um, so if, a, if there's a, a blockchain that supports proof of stake, you know, where you basically commit your coins to usually some, there's some lockup period where, you know, you're, you're dedicated for some amount of time. Uh, you know, it's an alternative to the proof of work system. Um, and, uh, you know, we will manage that for people. So basically, uh, you know, you don't have to go into the command line and like figure it out yourself. It's, we just give you a, a simple interface to do it, but behind the scenes, we're staking those coins for you on the blockchain. Um, they earn a return. Uh, so there are a couple different Kind of versions of this you know um some are just basically to run the blockchain they're they're just doing voting and you know not doing anything exotic there's not really like a chance of the whole thing blowing up because of there's some like weird algo going on with a a peg to something um and then others are sort of like contracts that are like lending contracts basically uh they're for like you know earning yields uh in some way through some kind of lending or commitment of your coins to something, and uh, these are the ones that kind of tend to blow up uh, where uh, you know something in the algo gets out of sync or the oracle gets compromised somehow, and um, you know someone's able to like take advantage of something and like extract a lot of value
0: as an exchange. How do you think about what services you offer um, because a lot of these are new. Um, in many cases, unproven, Mm -hmm. there are vectors, as we've talked about, where they can be exploited. So and I think sometimes when people get listed on Kraken, Coinbase, etc. In fact, XRP was trying to pay (laughs) uh, and to try to, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, lobby to get listed. That was like Mm -hmm. a big uh, in the SEC documents, a big uh, Mm -hmm. part of it was they were allegedly, I don't want to say bribing, but incentivizing heavily to get listed on exchanges. And that seemed really um, to be part of the SEC's problems with them uh, with some of those behaviors. But how do you think about what you offer? And I know you're, I I think your politics pretty libertarian. So I think you want Mm -hmm. people to have to do what they want to do with their money. But how do you think about your responsibility? And how you vet them? You said you were trying to vet these coins as 10,000 of them, and you have a hard time with it. So how do you how do you think about that? Because a lot of it's new and then you must have consumers demanding like hey i want access to this you want to mm-hmm. give them access to as much as possible but you know they they will think whether you say it or not that listing them is an endorsement right mm-hmm. to a certain extent
3: yeah uh let me be clear the listing anything is not an endorsement and mm-hmm. i think nasdaq and nicey would tell you the same thing yeah. that um you know there's a process that that we put coins through we don't accept any any kind of payment for mm-hmm. for listing Uh, we have our own pipeline of, you know, things that we're looking at for, for various reasons. There's a scoring system of like, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. how, how hotly demanded is it from our clients? Do our competitors support it? What's the trading volume look like in the market? Um, is this, is there something like, you know, novel about this or like, especially interesting about it? Um, there's a a ton of things that kind of go into the analysis of like, what order we're going to list things in. And, um, you know, and then there's like a very comprehensive review process for, uh, legal, you know, regulatory, technical, um, a bunch of stuff goes in, into the review. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's why we have only 200 out of 10,000 coins listed, Uh, but, you know, I would love to list more coins. Um, it's, it's, I think, you know, 95% of the interest is, you know, in, in just kind of the, the very top uh, of the coins. And then there's this like crazy long tail. But the thing about the long tail is like, you just never know when something's going to have its moment, yeah. you know? And, uh, I mean like Dogecoin, we had Dogecoin listed for years, nothing happening. Suddenly like Elon goes nuts about it and yeah. boom, like, thank God we, we were there because, hmm. you know, we would have missed the wave. if We just tried to like get it up, um, after, after the wave came. So, you know, a lot of things work like that, you know, they might, there, there might be nothing happening. Um, And then, you know, once or twice a year, they have a day that, you know, where they do a million dollars in revenue or something like that. So there's incentive to list everything. And there's also this kind of competitive thing too. Like Ah. clients will say, Hey, I just want to trade that one coin. If you don't have that one thing that I want to have this one new thing, I'm going to take Mm. my entire portfolio Ah. away to this other venue that's doing Mm. everything plus that one thing. So there's this competitive thing going on as well, where You know, it's not just like you miss out on the incremental revenue of that one new thing. It's like, if you don't do that one new thing, you might lose all all of your revenue for everything else.
0: Um, Talk to me about uh, money laundering and the protections against that we just had. I think it was was the firm that uh, Reuters had reported. They had maybe $2 billion in transactions, uh, Binance, I think it was. Uh, They had upwards of $2 billion. Again, this is all alleged of uh you know dark transactions money laundering you know bad stuff let's say so uh obviously people who want to move money who are in that you know uh line of work are going to try to use these systems how, how do you protect against that and for you how big of a reality is it you know because it, it it is something that the press wants to cover it is something that gets headlines and it is something real right uh, and the offshore uh places seem to do it quite freely but You're in multiple jurisdictions. So how do you think about it? And then how big of a problem is it practically in terms of, you know, if a billion dollars goes through your exchange, you know, how much of it would potentially even be uh, in those categories? Uh, Because it's not zero, right? You have to deal with people doing bad things in the world. So and then I guess the third part will be like, how, how do you actually deal with it with, you know, governments and agencies and how often do you have to deal with it?
3: Yeah, you definitely can't prevent 100% of it, but, um, you know, I think, I think we get a relatively small amount of that coming through and we've got pretty, pretty tight controls in place. You know, I, I think the game is really just not being the lowest hanging fruit. You know, this, this money, you know, when we find it, we freeze the accounts and law enforcement takes over. So, uh, you know, they're not great returns if you're trying to launder money through crack and, you know, you might just end up with your money all frozen. Uh, so, it tends to, to go through the, the channels which are open. Mm. And so, you know, I think the guys that are worst at catching this stuff are, you know, their numbers will be 100 times what, what someone who's good at it just because, you know, mm-hmm. the, the guys, uh, you know, the guys laundering money learned their lesson. They got burnt once or twice trying to launder money through Kraken. And now they're just like, all right, we don't want to lose any more money. Let's just go where it's easier. Um, you know, that said, I think some of the headline numbers are are inflated. Uh, you know, they tend to count, like, I I feel like the numbers that should be counted are like deposits and maybe withdrawals, but I've seen them count trading, you know, one guy will deposit Ah. some, deposit some stolen money or something, trade it a million times. And then they're counting all of those transactions adding up, you know, and then he just withdraws like the same amount he deposited. Um, so it kind of depends on how you count it, but you know, I think I I, in crypto, I think Chainalysis did a, a great report on this. Uh, it's just it's just minuscule compared to the legacy banking system, mm. you know. And crypto is so traceable. You know, I think there's this there's misconception, which I, I think is going away, um, that you know crypto is somehow like totally anonymous and like can't be tracked. But I mean, as we've seen, uh, you know, like there was this uh, the Bitfinex hack, the Mt. Gox yep. hack. I mean, they they chased these guys down years later because yep. they just slipped up one time. They bought yep. they bought Bitcoin with coffee. And oops, I used the wrong wallet. That was the yeah. wallet I stole all the money with, and yeah. uh you know, and then they're busted um so it's really not a great way to launder money and uh I think it's it's really nothing compared to the legacy system
0: all right so let's let's uh, uh this is all incredible by the way. Thank you for being so open and honest uh and and informative yeah. about the crypto space um Let's talk about this new York Times article uh as we were getting the tail end of the discussion here, I think you're you're pretty libertarian in your views. Um, and you also operate in many different jurisdictions. The New York mm-hmm. Times wrote this article. Um, and I think uh what was the origin of the article and uh what is what is what was right about it, what was wrong about it?
3: Yeah. It, it got almost everything wrong. I mean, yeah. there are very few, you'll notice very few actual quotes in there, mm-hmm. a lot of editorializing, a lot of missing context. And, you know, I don't know if people just took cherry picked snippets from mm. from chat that happened like you know over the course of weeks, or if they gave everything you know to the reporter and he did his own cherry picking uh,
0: but this you is know, slack just, right I mean people yeah. on slack at work, I always tell people like get rid of the the random off topic <laughs> channels because man, if anybody's corporation had those dumped, it's just going to be employees letting off steam around a water cooler and yeah. One person likes the Chappelle show and the other person doesn't. And then all of a sudden, you know, just out of context looks really bad uh, or can be a come kind of a headline in the New York Times. So, yeah, uh, this is uh, basically employees who were disgruntled leaked your Slack chats.
3: Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. So there was there was like weeks, many weeks of conversations about a, a number of topics, um, which, you know, I think got got kind of like kicked off about um there was a debate going about whether, uh, you know, men and women think about finances differently. Okay. You know, which got into like, whether or not there's actually like differences between biological sex or differences in the brain chemistry of men and women or diff- like actually Ooh. differences. Is it all nature or is there some nurture in there or is it vice yeah. versa? Um, and there were some people who like, actually hundred percent believe that Ah, uh, the differences between sex in in men and women and humans is one hundred percent nurture. And like, if you just start as a baby, you're basically like identical. And um, there were all
0: these like papers shared, you know, all this or research. I think that would shared. be nature, right? If you if it was all inside of you, two twins put in two different locations, they, they have the same outcome. Nurture would be how you were brought up, right? So yeah, yeah. basically, people go into the third rail of biology you know, are you born this way? Or did your parents and the environment have an impact? Something that is becoming very challenging, the book, the bell curve, intelligence, gender Mm -hmm. differences, and just the even the concept of there being a gender difference for some people. um, You know, that is uh, very offensive. And for other people, it's like offensive not to recognize that biology plays a role.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, And, you know, no one ever said in the course of all of these discussions, that Men are better than women, or women are better than men, or you know one's smarter than the other. It was it was strictly talking about like, are women better at this thing? Are men better at this thing? Okay, or do they think about these things differently? It wasn't ever like you know one's better than the other. Mm. Um, and you know as you might imagine, we've got employees over three thousand employees in seventy plus countries that speak fifty plus languages, and people have different views about things. And you know like you just said, um, you know some countries really embrace. Uh, differences in in gender and um, you know that's just a core part of their culture and it's something they laugh about and talk about all the time and um, you know other other cultures you know i think largely like west post united states um, really you know seems to feel like um, you know talking about any differences of the biological sexes is is just taboo
0: yeah. And I think you jumped in the actual quote was most American ladies have been brainwashed in modern times. I guess you're referring to how they think yeah. about this issue.
3: Well, this is like completely taken out of context. Actually, yeah. uh, you know, I was joking about how, um, and by the way, I think we're all brainwashed. I consider myself heavily brainwashed. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's not like I was calling out, you know, women specifically. And I even, yeah. I said this as well. Of course, it wasn't included in the article, but got it. Um, what I was joking about was that. Um, I think looking like a pirate is cool. I think mm-hmm. being disheveled and having a beard and like, you know, yeah. uh, just looking like a pirate, I think that's cool. Uh, and I think a lot of guys think that's cool. But women, on the other hand, in, in America, the women that I know anyway, might not think that's so cool, okay. you know, because of brainwashing of thinking what like a, a, a good looking man, you know, looks like, or, you know, what, what level of cleanliness is appropriate, you know, for a man or whatever, you know, I, it was a total joke. Yeah. Completely taken out of context. And um, yeah, I think we're all brainwashed. And um, I wish more people would appreciate the pirate aesthetic.
0: What channel is this occurring in? Is this just like the random channel? People are just um, talking about stuff? like, Or is there a channel for, is there a channel cracking <laughs> for gender differences or third yeah, real topics? <laughs> there is,
3: yeah, yeah, there are a lot of channels actually. We, we try to, like, anytime a particular topic comes up, uh, you know, create a dedicated channel for people, and wow. you know, actually, we're going to stop doing this because it's just gone like totally off the rails. <laughs> Apparently, and, you know, we had the, the last the last one of these was the the gender uh, the pronouns debate channel. Oh, great, wow, it was. So you went biological
0: differences between genders to
3: pronouns. Well, that kind of yeah, I mean, it kind of right. like segued into into the pronoun discussion, yeah. and you know, I found out that um, people on our recruiting team we're mm. actually offering uh, offering candidates, you know, saying, hey, these are my pronouns, what are your pronouns? And we had a lot of people report into us, like, hey, why are you asking me, I'm a job candidate, mm. why are you inquiring about my sexual identity, my, ah, you know. It's a little and, bit intrusive, yeah. Intrusive, and yeah. a lot of people, you know, I mean, in, insulting in some cultures, you know, imagine you're, I said this on Twitter, Imagine you're, you're from a a very, uh, you know, traditional Orthodox, you know, Muslim background, you're, you're living in Saudi Arabia, whatever. And, and a woman who's interviewing you for a job says, Hey, are you a man or a woman? (laughs) You know, while you're sitting there with your beard and everything, like, I mean, come on, like it's, it's done in the name of inclusivity, but like, I think we've lost the sense of like sensitivity of like, you know, cultural relativism and like being sensitive to Mm. differences, you know, not trying to, you know, I think, I think. Americans, I don't know if it's in our DNA or what, but we love to export things. And uh, we love to export our culture. And I feel it's like a, a very colonialist thing to do is to to just try to impose your your culture onto people. Mm-hmm. So we got a bunch of complaints about this, about the uh, the request or offering, even offering of pronouns, because, you know, if you're not American and a lot of, you know, we, people in 70 plus countries, people have different levels of, of English abilities. Um you know, they would say like, okay, what, your pronouns are what? Like, I've never heard of this concept of like, you can choose your own pronouns. So yeah. now I'm like, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to speak English to you as my second language. I might not be that comfortable with it. And now mm. I'm like, you know, maybe my native language doesn't even have gendered pronouns. So I'm, I'm just like, you know, and I'm like, okay, what? Like, okay, I, I've got to speak more slowly. I've got to think about if I'm going to offend you. I've got to have anxiety about this job interview that I'm in. Like, if I get your pronouns wrong, right. while I'm trying to speak English to you, uh, am I going to yeah, lose so this job? so maybe just not have it in the application.
0: Like, is it even relative? I mean, even yeah. knowing the gender, I mean, I think I've heard arguments uh, in HR that you shouldn't know the gender or the last name because you don't want to bias hiring. I think um, that's ideal, yeah. They, they literally um, will put Susan S, you know, James H, Joe P. And, the, yep. you know, even that in most cultures would tell you if they're male or female mm-hmm. based on the, you know, with a pretty high level of certainty. So, you know, yep. there's also doing reviews without um even having the name so you actually are looking at the merit of the candidate of course you decided to make this a channel debate dash pronouns on slack might not have been Uh, you like to debate stuff apparently you like to talk and debate stuff i asked you to come on the pod you're like yeah let's do it check out and we just talked for half an hour about the hardest topics in crypto and you engaged everyone uh in a very like honest way you like to debate I I I was
3: a philosophy major uh, in oh, college. Oh, this explains so, everything. Uh, <laughs> this is your and, kill zone. Uh, you love to debate. Uh, I love to debate. Um, however, you know, in hindsight, you know, I've changed the rules now. There's no more. There's no more debating policies on Slack. If you want to change the policy, you now have to submit a paper to me, a uh, oh. minimum of five pages, and uh, I'll read so it. So you, you have to. One, oh, that's interesting. Why wi- five pages? Uh, yeah, uh, because I think I think you have to. I think you have to be able to lay out what you think the current state of affairs is. Got it. You have to be able to lay out what your argument is. Any sources for that? I I just feel like five pages is probably, you could try to do it in less. I just feel like if you did it in less, it probably wouldn't do your argument
0: justice. Uh, So this is like the Amazon six pager. You got the Kraken five pager. If you want to change policy, there's a benchmark other than sniping off three quick Slack messages. You've got to actually construct your argument in order to engage the argument, yeah, yeah, yeah that seems like a, a good evolution of your policy. Yeah, like having I everybody so. in a free for all in a Slack room, no, you know, <laughs> could be <and>
3: distracting. <laughs> it turned out to be distracting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I thought there are no policies that I've I've created at the company that I'm I'm not like incredibly well informed on. Yeah, and so you know, I think when I opened it up to debate, and you know, I'm just thinking maybe people will have better ideas than me. You know, maybe yeah. maybe I'll get
0: to like creating a better policy. But, um, and even that before- was your intent. That was, was to have yeah. like a sincere discourse about this. Your intent for was sure. not to be a troll or something. No,
3: yeah. And we created a separate channel for it. And I said, I'm going to create this separate channel. There's going to be a lot of controversial stuff set in there. You might find it offensive. If you're very emotionally attached to your position or to this, you know, debate, like don't join this channel. Don't come look at it. Uh, unfortunately I feel like that probably had the opposite effect that I wanted because I think I created like a, cl- like clickbait for people, you know, they're mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, there's going to be some hot, some hot stuff said in this channel. I better get in there and see what's going on. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I think people just couldn't help themselves. And, you know, the, the, the debate, which I hoped would be like a very logical, informed debate just quickly devolved into like, I'm offended. Why don't you mm. respect people? You know, Got whatever. It. And so.
0: Ad hominem attacks. Yeah. People's people's feelings which are super valid but could be a very wide range of feelings on these topics and people could have personal trauma personal history they could have been attacked because of their gender or choices so yeah yeah, it's a it's a minefield and i think that's a pretty great lesson for you to (laughs) go for that for sure i mean this is one of the I think things that happens at a startup, you have 3000 people or something in that range. Yeah,
3: 3200.
0: 3200. I mean, I think this is what happens when a company grows quickly and the founder wants to give everybody a chance to chime in. And it's one of the great traditions of Silicon Valley, these open Fridays where you get to like attack your boss and ask him like crazy questions. And there's no holds barred. And it, it was one of the beautiful things about Silicon Valley and technology was, hey, you could debate. And anybody could engage anybody in management with any debate and Slack obviously supercharges that, you know, and so do these open Q&A forums, but it can also become a huge distraction. I think that's why Brian Armstrong, who I've had on the pod twice now, all in end this week in startups, mm-hmm. he was just like, you know what, <laughs> we got a singular mission here, we need to stay focused on it and enough of the, of the distraction. So, um, you knew this story was coming, so you decided to do a, do a preemptive like tweetstorm about the culture yep. uh, where how do you define the culture uh, and and how did you come to that culture uh, you know for Kraken and for what works for you and your team
3: yeah, I mean I think it's pretty much it's pretty much been there since inception you know in the early days of the company uh, it was really hard to get people to to come to work for a crypto company, and so yep. you know the people that tended to join were people that were true believers in in the mission of you know all, all the good that bitcoin could do for the world and uh, so you know it wasn't really a problem early on uh, to to get people that are really ideologically aligned mm. and uh, you know i think here for a greater purpose um i think as things went on um you know more people started to join the space especially in the last year or two uh, and, and i think you know some of the problems are compounded by the fact that we just haven't been able to get together in person because of covid and so mm. you know pre covid we were getting together several times a year and uh, able to build this rapport and able to understand, you know, where, where we're all coming from um, post-COVID, you know, we had a lot of people come in during a time of extreme hype in the crypto market, who I think, um, you know, while fantastically talented, um, just, you know, we're not necessarily believers in the mission or really, really that into crypto. They just, I think, saw it as a great opportunity in a, in a growing space. And um, I think that combined with the fact that we just weren't able to get together in person, um, you know, we didn't have that that connection, and so I think people just, you know, we're we're more misaligned. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I kind of felt that through, you know, some of the discussions that happened in in Slack. And so, um, you know, we developed this program. uh, We call it Jet Ski, and uh, so you know, we try to try to do everything like nautically themed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you don't like working here. Um, we said between, uh, between June 1st, when we announced it and, uh, in June 20th, um, you can take the jet ski and sail off, you know, into the sunset, happy, happily ever after, find something that works better for you. And, um, you A know, jet ski f-
0: costing probably three or four grand. So you're basically saying, we'll we'll pay for your jet ski to yeah, zip f- out of here.
3: <laughs> could be, could be a pretty nice jet ski. I mean, it's four months of severance. So, oh, okay. Know, it could could be,
0: be a, be a, that could be a, yeah, could could be be a, a little boat. You, you yeah. get a scorpion for that. <laughs> Uh, so basically paying people, uh a la Tony Shea, rest in peace, you're just paying people to leave, giving them an incentive to leave just to test if they really want to be here. And yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, when the company gets bigger and people are communicating electronically and you go remote, it's impossible to or it's very difficult to create culture. I wouldn't say impossible, but it's a different type of culture that's built. Then employees become transient. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of working at Kraken versus working at Google versus working at Uber. Is a matter of logging out of one Slack and logging into another, mm-hmm. and, and you know logging out of one you know Notion instance or Google Docs instance and into another. It, it's a it's a different world right now. Yeah. Um, so, um, what has the reaction been? Uh, well, well, let me ask this: Do you feel like the the New York Times treated you fairly uh, in their reporting? And if not, what do you think was unfair?
3: Definitely not. I mean, it is totally a hit piece. I think the author had had made up his mind about the narrative. You know, I, I think he said he only talked to five people in the whole company. Out of thirty-two hundred, yeah. Out of thirty-two hundred, um, one 1% know. would be thirty-two people.
0: So this is yeah, yeah ten yeah. basis points. And uh,
3: as of as of like an hour ago, I checked how many people have taken the jet ski for cultural reasons, culture oh. or mission fit reasons, and it was thirty-one people. So uh, out of 30. so
0: okay. So yeah,
3: sub, yeah. sub 1% um, of people. I mean, and leaving. that's with a
0: four month severance beyond the offer at yeah. summertime. I mean, literally, yeah. at any given point in time, if you were to offer at any company four months of severance, I think you would get the same number. I wonder if that number correlates at all with the story or not.
3: Well, yeah, there, there have been additional people who take it, you know, for other reasons. They just say, yeah, yeah whatever. I got, you know, a family thing. So I'm going to, I'm just now's a good time. They yeah. were going to leave anyway. Right. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of it, but yeah, 31 that, that said specifically for the reason of, uh, culture or mission, uh, mm-hmm. misalignment. Got it. Um,
0: oh, so, so you yeah. asked them on the way out. Hey, just, yeah. we'll, we'll give you the jet ski. Just tell us. And 31 yep. said, Hey, culture mission. I, yep. That's great for you. And for them, why should Absolutely. they be in a company that they don't believe in the mission and your mission pretty clearly stated our mission yeah. is to accelerate the adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. So you even have inclusion in there. And I think a lot of the folks in crypto are really about helping underserved people, a very diverse group of global people, and the unbanked, mm-hmm. which by definition are from, you know, uh, some of the uh, poorest countries in the world, right? Absolutely. Uh, the emerging world, I, not we don't call it the third world, we use the word emerging world, these emerging, yeah. you know, countries really need crypto. And a- every crypto person I talk to, that's on the top of their mind. I'm assuming that's a big part of your mission as well, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've traveled extensively visited, you know, like 40 countries. Uh, you know, my last business was uh, selling virtual stuff, uh, you know, World of Warcraft gold and stuff like that. You know, I did that for a decade, had tremendous, tremendous problems with the payment system and uh, international buyers, um, international suppliers of virtual goods and that kind of stuff. And, you know, really came to be aware of all of these problems with the legacy financial system. Uh, through through the last business and, and through traveling. And, uh, you know, I think that's lost uh, on a lot of Americans who who aren't as well traveled. Um, you know, we even talked to somebody in in the Treasury Department in the United States, who said, uh, my bank account and credit cards work just fine. Why would anyone use Bitcoin? And, yeah. you know, I mean, like, how privileged do you
0: have to be? Yeah, you know, not to make everybody like can get a Not everybody gets seven credit cards mailed to them every month with $3,000 and some blank checks in it to pay off the previous ones. Like, we live in a pretty robust economy. In fact, the most robust economy in the world, you know, at least over the last century. Um, You uh, say in the document that uh, you believe in rights like free speech, free markets, liberty, self-defense, and limited government. Yeah. Pretty controversial to be in favor of the US Constitution these days, apparently. Uh, it, oddly <laughs> I mean, you, did enough, you basically it lift that from the constitution just to troll people i mean pretty much i mean we 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 stay in
3: there you know this shouldn't be a surprise to americans you know these yeah. these and uh you know there are some people in other countries who have totally different views about uh yeah. gun ownership you know the right sure. to self-defense mm-hmm. um yeah. the right to bodily autonomy the right the right to not be forced to to take a vaccine mm-hmm. um you know there are widely different views out there in the world uh our positions basically have whatever views you want is you know you don't you're not required to have a gun to work at Kraken you're not required mm. to to get a vaccine to work at Kraken uh in fact you know our our retreat policy says like we're, we're not going to discriminate at all we're going to have retreats in places where there's just no there's no requirement either way to get in so you know you can if you don't have a vaccine that's cool if you do that's cool we're not going to ask um and uh you know I think um yeah there's just there's a lot of different views on it you know we want to prepare people up front for what to expect um yeah and so you know i think if you are if you would be highly offended by a corporate retreat involving an optional gun range as part yeah, of you come, know, the you program
0: know. yeah yeah don't come just, i did that you know, you know I, I like play pigeon shooting uh i've always wanted to be uh learn how to be a sniper and so at my angel um summit where you know like 150 angel investors come and hang out and and learn from each other and do some you know uh whatever i have activities in the afternoon and when i went to you know a famous banks retreat they took me clay pigeon shooting i, I was like this is so much fun so i set up clay pigeon shooting also set up snipers no nobody complained it was an adult there was mm-hmm. also a painting and a cooking and a wine tour it was napa you, you, you get to pick it's no, yeah. no big deal but yeah. I, you, you are putting that out there up front um, i like this one <laughs> uh, or at least as a discussion point we will advertise with and sponsor sponsor controversial television programs podcasts influencers and events if it furthers the mission. Okay. This means you've had people complain that you sponsored some other podcast. Might I guess Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro or something?
3: Yeah. Um I you know, I, I can't think of one in particular, oh. uh, but you know, it's something we've talked about doing. And um, you know, I go on other controversial podcasts or TV programs, you know, uh occasionally. And um Which one would be the most controversial that we'd know? It, you know, I don't know. Probably Fox News would probably be oh. the most
0: the most controversial to the people who who care hmm. um but we're not talking about alex jones or somebody like no, hyper polarizing <laughs> like no i haven't
3: although well, that would be entertaining i would do it for for the entertainment value. What about steve
0: Bannon? um <laughs> yeah, you know I, I would i would do that I find you know? steve Bannon like the most fascinating character either he's like a james bond level villain strategist or he's just a complete shub, schlub you know blogger i can't tell uh, yeah, I, I
3: know people that know him, and yeah. uh, I think he's what's their read? I think he's 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 you know the man behind the curtain, kind of like you know, subtle genius guy, yeah, uh, so is, is what I've heard. I've never talked to him, you know. I don't but know he but. he
0: worked with Brock Pierce on that company he did with the gaming and the mining yeah. of gaming IGB. stuff, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, back in China, back in whenever 2000s, yeah. So it's really interesting. All roads lead back to Brock, uh, <laughs> in this case. Okay, so that's an interesting one, but I guess people on the staff could complain, just like people who work at Netflix uh, might complain about Chappelle and people at Spotify might complain about Joe Rogan. So you're kind of intercepting that. Yeah. Um, yeah, like we may incorporate firearm and self-defense training into corporate retreats. Okay. <laughs> um, someone must be offended some of the time. If nobody's ever offended, we either don't have enough diversity of thought or we don't have enough transparency and communication. Explain this philosophy i think this is a, one of the more interesting ones in the culture deck yeah so document you know
3: it, not that i we aim to offend everybody but i think um you know there's some people who feel like they should they should be able to have a workplace where nobody is ever offended period yeah. um and mm-hmm. you know i think being offended is a very subjective thing uh you know people in different cultures have all sorts of obscure things that offend them you know. Yeah. Um, you know, in in uh in the Arab world, showing someone the bottom of your foot offensive. Uh, you know, and people do that, you know, they cross their I mean, legs shaking and, hands, you know. yeah Shaking hands. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, spitting on
0: the ground <laughs> in some places. Eating common. in a meeting. <laughs> yeah. I mean anything could be. Yeah. Yeah. So talking you know, with food in your mouth. Yeah. Everything could be offended to different people. So the idea here is yeah, hey, you we know, got- sometimes people being offended means we're talking about the right topics.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we got, again, 70 plus countries represented in the company. Why, you know, probably double that, at least in terms of like ethnicities and, you know, different cultures. And, um, you know, we just, we just don't aim to not offend anybody. I, I yeah. think, you know, to target zero offensiveness would be to just shut down the whole company, you know, and, and, uh, we just gotta, you know, I think we just gotta become more resilient, I think, and understanding of each other.
0: Yeah. So. I guess your concept here is hey let me just warn you up front this is going to be a intellectually full contact employment experience you're going to be with people i'm a philosophy major other people are libertarian people in crypto tends to attract people who have unique thoughts about the world some of them are pirates some of them are radicals some of them are anarchists whatever yeah just be prepared if you come to this company it's going to be a full contact intellectual debate at times you might get offended but we're all adults there's no harm intended if you are harmed i'm I'm speaking for you like we could talk that out and make sure that like you know we understand your position and maybe avoid it in the future like you said before you're not trying to offend people you're just letting people know that if you are offended it's not the end of the world
3: yeah absolutely you know and i think i think people should should work these disputes out as adults Uh, you know, and sometimes it's just having a one-on-one conversation with someone on video to just talk something out, you know, like, why was that offensive to you? You know, no one is ever saying things in an intentionally offensive way. You know, I think people 99.99% of the time, everyone has good intent. No one's intentionally saying things offensively. And I think two adults can, can work out their differences. And, you know, sometimes you just don't have to work with people, you know, in a company of 3000 people. If you don't, if you have a problem with what's being said in the guns channel, like just Mm -hmm. leave the guns channel, you know, and there's like a thousand other channels you could be joining, you know, puppy photos or whatever. You don't have to like engage in all this stuff.
0: It's fascinating. So, what happens after the story comes out? I mean, there's a fear where there has traditionally been a fear. Like a story from the New York Times comes out like this. This is, I'm talking about like 10, 20 years ago. It's the end of the company. It's the beginning of the end. CEO is going to get fired. The company is going to, you know, the board is gonna go crazy. It's, you know, it's a New York Times story. It's a New York Times, quote, unquote, hit piece. Um, What is the or I guess they would put it under their culture piece. But um, what what was the ramification net net? Because you don't seem like you're resigning over this. You seem like you've doubled down and it's actually made you more clear or more intentional in your approach to running the business.
3: Yeah, I mean the the response has been overwhelmingly positive actually. Um, you know, I think people see through the the article. Uh it's just very light on actual details, you know, heavily editorialized, very few actual quotes. Um most people that have responded have said, uh yeah, so when's the hit piece coming? Because this looks just like huh. a an advertisement to work at Kraken for me. So, you know, I think it's 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 had more positive result than than negative and I think there's there's been a lot of
0: backlash about this kind of coverage uh, yeah. recently. So I think people are kind of over it. I think that's one of the problems I have with the New York Times. Like, um, I would, and the way I structured this interview with you, when I asked you on, my intent was, I'm a former journalist, editor-in-chief, and an investor now, and entrepreneur. Uh, my intent was, I'll just tell you my game plan. Let me talk to you about what you're an expert on and learn as much as I can from you. And then go in with an open mind. To what you're doing in culture and why you're doing it seems like we had a pretty reasonable conversation. Now, with this New York Times piece you would think that you were the most sexist, racist, insane person running like a company where all the employees hate you. But the statistics don't show that, and the conversation—you seem pretty level-headed and reasonable. So I, I don't think you're snowing me. I think you're presenting yourself as you truly are, and I appreciate you being candid and having the discussion. I think. This is one of the reasons people are a little frustrated in the tech community, specifically with the New York Times, is that these stories feel like they're never-endingly looking for a negative story. Now, I'm not saying there's not negativity in in tech. There's negativity in media, there's negativity in the energy industry, there's bad stories in politics, there's bad stories in entertainment, movies, every, you know, every industry's got some dark stories to be told, I suppose. But there's so many interesting stories to tell as well. And I just feel like the percentage of coverage is a little out of whack um they do seem to go after women a lot harder too so i think they maybe went easy on you because you're not a female founder i've I've noticed that
3: it's really it's really rough out there for the female executives who i think just get beaten up for things that uh the male execs do as you know as a matter matter of normal ordinary business you know holding people accountable having high standards then it's like why is this woman, you know, such a b word? You're, you're holding
0: people accountable. Can I invest? <laughs> Wait a second. You're hard driving. You demand results from team members. Like, you isn't call this one option? Weekend? Wait. Yeah. You ask people to, yeah, double down on their skill set and work harder. Like, I think this is the recipe for winning in, in the competition <laughs> called capitalism. Like, if you're not holding people accountable on a basketball team or in surgery at a hospital. Like, you're not doing your job. It's the same thing in entrepreneurship. You have to hold yeah. people accountable. When they went after the away CEO, because I don't know if you read that one. But yeah, they went oh, after I, the
3: I did. Totally shameful coverage.
0: And I'm just like, why are they attacking her for telling everybody they need to work hard over Christmas? Yeah. And the holidays, which is when they make 90% of their money. Like, totally. they don't have a the, the job is to work those days. When I worked at a restaurant, my dad had a restaurant in Brooklyn we worked mother's day we worked father's day we worked new year's eve we worked thanksgiving why because we made a ton of money and then we would have thanksgiving on friday and yep. we would you know and we, we'd celebrate father's day on saturday and mother's day on saturday so we could make the money to keep the family going the away story was like well how do you think we're going to make money this, these are the perfect gift yeah luggage is a great gift <laughs> anyway it's just crazy like we could go on for hours. I feel like the world has story. gone a little bit crazy because yeah. reading this story, you, w- I was like, I wonder how weird this guy is. Like, he really painted you to be like really strange and like, I, you don't yeah, seem that strange to me. By
3: the way, like the, the policies, the policies that I set for the company, you know, I'm thinking about it from a public policy perspective. Like, we have to make a law for everyone. It's not about mm-hmm. what I would do individually. You know, if Jason says he wants to be uh, he, him, or or she, her, or whatever, like, Cool. I'm happy to accommodate that, you know, but it's like, what am I willing to impose on the whole company, you know, yeah. and thinking about like, how difficult is this going to be if 3000 people take advantage of having custom pronouns? And how difficult is it going to be for people who don't speak English that well uh-huh. or, f- or who have, you know, a culture or religion, you know, that really is going to be offended by, you know, something there, you know, so it's not just like, I think people, I think people look at the company's policy and are like, you know, why would you not enforce this on everybody? Yeah, And, you know, I'm like, you know, legislated morality is a contradiction in, in terms, you know, we can't force people to be moral. I think we can just say we can encourage people to, mm. to accommodate their fellow people. But like, you know, ultimately everyone has a different, you know, different reasons for why they might, might want to or might not. And so, you know, we try to be hands off about as much of this as possible. And Hmm. You know what I would do individually is not necessarily, you know, what I would enforce on the whole world.
0: I guess the one thing that they did go after you for was like the slack group, like trolling group. Uh and said and you thought 4chan was full of trolls. Mm-hmm. Uh what's the context there because the New York Times uh didn't provide much context here. What's the story with the trolling because I'm on a bunch of like group threads where people share memes and yeah, some of them are a little out there. Uh you know, it's kind of part of internet culture. So what's the story with the trolling Slack room? Do you still have it or?
3: Yeah, it was a- just set up as a joke. There's nothing yeah. going on in there. Basically, there's a bot in that chat room or when you join it, the bot says, I'm, a- I'm extremely offended that you joined this chat room. And <laughs> that's basically all it does. There's, there's really, there's nothing more to it.
0: And the interesting thing is the New York Times then makes the jump. Yeah. 4chan quote, known for hate speech and radicalizing some of the gunmen behind mass shootings. So are you in favor of mass shootings? <laughs> Guess is what they're saying? No, no uh, yeah, definitely not. I mean, yeah, they they really... Uh, it's so, they're trying to tie this together. Uh, yeah. That you are joking about trolling in 4chan. 4chan has had some number of members joking about or they participated in radicalizing gunmen behind mass shootings. I don't know if that's ever actually been proven, but okay, let's say it was like, are they kind of trying to make a jump here? This is like putting you next to. Yeah. It's by putting you in proximity in the sentence. Like this is the game I think. Yeah. Is how close can we put you to that? Cause yeah, I I, I don't get the sense that you're, even though you like to shoot guns, which I do too. And I'm a gun owner. I'm, I'm a responsible gun owner. Like, um, for good reason, you know. Yeah. People know who I am. Like somebody might mm-hmm. try to jump the fence someday. For and sure. That would be a really bad idea, just putting it out there. Uh, for the person. <laughs> uh like why would they put this known for hate speech and radicalizing some of the gunmen behind mass shootings? It's like almost like they're trying to make this jump this is a really big jump to me.
3: Oh yeah. It's so intellectually dishonest and it's just it it doesn't even clear the bar for like, you know, basic journalistic integrity. I mean, it's yeah. presumably this went through an editor as well you know who said cool yeah let's yeah. publish this um it's I mean, so it's so crazy it's not even it's not even news or reporting anymore it's just opinion pieces
0: Yeah, i mean it's like oh this person was at a party and um i don't know this person who later turned out to be a serial killer had gone to that restaurant and yeah. was known for going to that restaurant and i was at a party at the restaurant like what i'm sorry jeffrey Dahmer ate at this restaurant and <laughs> I went to a birthday party at this restaurant and
2: the is restaurant really is known as the yeah. place
0: where Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, ate. I I mean, come on, like what's the relevance here? I mean, it's yeah. just, yeah, I think they're trying to paint you into maybe something you're not, or maybe yeah. you're snowing everybody and you really seriously are.
3: Yeah. A I think if anything, I'm, I'm overly, I'm, I'm, uh, irresponsibly transparent, if anything.
0: Well, I do think actually, I was going to tell you that I think, you know, there's two ways to handle these things. One is to be radically transparent, which is what you are. Now, uh, the other is to just say, like, listen, we're just going to shut down everything. We're not going to talk. We're going to just go dark. Mm-hmm. And I know a couple of founders who have now chosen to just go dark. They tell people, don't list your company name on mm-hmm. your LinkedIn. Do not talk to the press. They don't engage in getting press. They're mm-hmm. high profile. They could get benefit from the press, um, you know, covering them or their services. But they're just like, well, it's not kind of not worth it. So they just cut off complete access and, and just go dark. It's, it really is like the two techniques, I think, when you're dealing with this um, kind of situation. But listen, I wish you the best yeah. with the business. Thanks, Thanks for being so transparent and honest and coming on. And Absolutely. You know, Thanks for uh, having me. And, and you've gotten many, you told me before, we were in the green room. Um, many more people um, have applied to come work there.
3: Yeah. At, I think, you know, we'll, we'll fill all these uh, vacated roles with people who are, you know, I think abundantly aligned with the culture and the mission. So, you know.
0: I think this is as adults where everybody is getting to with employment, whether it's 37 Signals, which is, you know, far left, I would Mm -hmm. say, or Kraken or Coinbase, which I say are probably libertarian, dare I say, and there are people who are on the right, you know, Ben Shapiro's company, whatever. I think people are just starting to realize as adults, we can pick where we work and we do not have to work at places where we disagree with the culture and people print culture documents now soon. And you can ask about the culture before you go there. You talk to 10 people who work there. Yeah. You
3: know, think end. of it like, uh, you know, dating. You know, if you're in a bad relationship, you know, maybe you want to ask some questions up front before you get married. But yeah. if you find yourself in a bad relationship,
0: Uh-oh, there's a million other options
3: out there. Now, and we're using the uh, dating
0: analogy. We might want to go back to pronouns <laughs> or nature versus nurture, Jesse, before we get ourselves in trouble. Yeah, that's maybe um, too heated. It <laughs> might be too heated. No, uh, literally in... The line of business I am with, with uh, is investing, we really use the analogy of, you know, getting to know somebody, dating them, getting engaged, getting married as like this courtship process in terms of investors and founders getting to know each other. It was completely innocuous. It wasn't meant in any kind of sexualized or gender or any kind of way. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, whoa, do not use that. It will trigger somebody. Yeah, and we like, can't so, talk about uh,
3: dating a female founder.
0: Well, or just dating in general, right? And then, yeah. you know, um, it, you know, as particularly like a lot of people met their spouses at work and like, mm-hmm. can we have an adult discussion about that? And it's like, I, you know, I know people yeah. who I just found a couple who got married and they had to keep their relationship, you know, hidden for a long time because it was a founder and it was a female venture capitalist. And they have a wonderful family and they met in, uh, you know, in business, but they were just scared to death. I think that like, whoa, if people find out that we fell in love and we happened to meet each other in a business meeting and then had kids together and family, it's like, I was like, you know, I think if you get married and have kids, you, you can meet at work. I think it's only if it doesn't work out that (laughs) you're going to be admonished for it, but it's a really charged subject, you know? It's,
3: it's, yeah, it's kind of silly that it, it always comes down to the, the gender thing, because you know, I'm extremely tight with my co-founder. You know, we are like 100%. We have each other's back on everything. And why isn't anyone complaining about that? You know, people should say, you guys are like way too tight. You know, this is like, you guys are irresponsibly tight. <laughs>
0: you know, yeah. you guys like, have too much. It's a little weird for us. <laughs> you guys yeah. are like going on walks together and having lunch too often. <laughs> you seem way too happy in your relationship. <laughs> yeah. All right, listen it, yeah no it used to be the the ways you met your partner was in the rankings uh, i'm gen x i think you're maybe a little younger than me but that was 80. the number one way uh, it's like um, meeting at work and now it's uh, like yeah. last i think it's an app is how you meet your spouse now <laughs> all right listen continued success yeah. if you want to work at kraken thanks. and you you dig jesse go there if you want to work somewhere else go work somewhere else the well said. yeah all right good thanks. luck with everything appreciate See you it. next time thanks Bye-bye. have a good one okay molly uh what'd you think of the interview Good stuff. I mean, really, right. a
1: very good conversation. I actually, if anything, I was wishing I could listen to it in reverse because I wanted to hear the like culture part before the crypto breakdown. But good, yes. good conversation on the crypto breakdown. Here's my
0: technique as an interviewer. I was like, we have two great topics. Mm-hmm. Let me warm up myself, the subject, and the audience with just covering all the hardest topics in crypto. Yep. If Jesse, who I know to be a pretty um, uh, uh, candid individual, if he could can be candid, we'll get into a nice rhythm of a candid back and forth, and that, this mm-hmm. is called pacing in therapy and psychology. So I was pacing with him. You may notice in the interview I explicitly try to go at his speed. Mm-hmm. I'm not going at my speed. My speed's faster. Uh, I was going at his speed, so I'm pacing with him. And this is really how I think about interviews is like, can I get into that little tennis volley? I imagine, okay, I ask him a question, he gives me a great answer, he starts to run out of steam with the return, I give him the next question, boom, and so we just started getting into that with DeFi and Luna and Tether and stable coins and regulation and what coins they list. Okay, now we're going to go into the discussion, the harder discussion. Mm -hmm. And let's see if that pacing and that nice volley can continue on in the interview. And then and it did. Will, it, yeah, and will it be productive and I, I felt like it was a very productive discussion and, and he was super candid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would I really hope the people who wrote the story at the New York Times listened to that, and then consider how they presented him. Now, I don't think that he sat for an interview with them, but they had an adversarial approach. Mm-hmm. And then you look at my approach, which was, I'm just trying to have a thoughtful conversation. I think this is why podcasts win. and Why the audience loves podcasts. And they just don't like clickbait media on either side. I mean, there might be tribal people on either end. But I do think you get... I am like, I think everybody likes it. That's the problem. Uh, it's part of the problem. <laughs> I, I do think there's a group of people who prefer what we do here on podcasts, yeah. Yeah. which is to be, have a thoughtful discussion. And you can see the clickbait can make somebody look crazy uh, or demonize them or make them look like a genius and laud them too much. Whereas the conversation, the awful conversation, lets you kind of make your own decision about the person and um lets the person maybe be better understood i think if you take the two pieces of media and you had a hundred people listen to the podcast a hundred people read the story out of those hundred how many would say i had a better understanding after the interview versus the story yeah i think we know the answer to it yeah Um, well or if you
1: take them both together and then you draw you know i I actually that's another thing to do is triangulate i think having triangulation is actually the key because you will find
0: follow him on twitter Read the New York Times story. Yep. Listen to the pod. Come to your own conclusions. Such yep. a great punch-up. Magic. You know, Magic. You have your moments where you like punch up my thinking and just make me a little crisper. I like it. Teamwork. It's teamwork. It's teamwork. It makes the dream work. Okay, next up. Speaking, speaking of teamwork. Of which. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves OK Boomer. Producer Rachel on PTO. As many Gen Z millennials are will do. They'll just take off a Friday when they have the Monday off for June. Listen, and I, I got to
3: stand up for
0: uh for it's my, Friday. My I know It's my like the first here. day she's know, taking off. Okay. Like, okay. <laughs>
3: And not only not only sh- during Rachel. this live stream, I have in my inbox four different emails that she Ooh. just sent booking guests nice. for Molly on On her conference. day off? On yeah. her day off.
0: That's yes. what I like. This is how I judge people, Molly. When you're off, how no, could you respond? Absolutely <laughs> not. Yes. Nope. You yep, gotta stop the weekend that. response time <laughs> on the weekend. Weekend response time. W mm-hmm. R T. <laughs> Illegal <laughs> in <laughs> France. Legal in the
2: U.S. Uh,
1: ba- I'm not every, saying I base compensation everyone, on
2: it.
0: You're responsible
1: for your own boundaries and health. Yes, treat your health accordingly.
0: But I am responsible for how I judge you <laughs> and people who respond <laughs> to the right. CEO quickly. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> anyway, oh, my I lord. Will tell anyway, anybody, Rachel, you, if I hear the word union. I forgot to bring. It to <laughs> oh under. God, you really are. I you're am gonna going to go there. union. I would never union bust. Here comes the red flags. But I would union retire. If anybody <laughs> wants to start a union, here's my response. You should totally start a union. I support you starting a union. <laughs> I'm retiring in <laughs> 60 days. Everybody has 60 or less days to work to wrap everything up. I think they're By all means t- unionize because I really am even, not having it. I'm not coming to work ever and that talking I to out a, a union leader every day f that <laughs> union okay. equals J cow retires Try the
1: good me. news is <laughs> i don't have to respond to this because you just said don't say the u word and i'm definitely not gonna i'm just not even gonna say it no i so know. You're- uh rachel who kicks all kinds of ass works awesome. really really hard all the time <laughs> yes he <laughs> has a great okay boomer for us i'm actually super into this concept she sits down with alexander olison the founder and ceo of babylon micro farms platform that makes indoor farming simple and accessible to enable anyone to grow their own fresh food. You know, I'm a prepper. I love this.
0: I'm really excited to hear this interview. I'm gonna listen to it for the first time right now. In three, two.
4: Okay, Boomer. I understood the assignment. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining. Okay, Boomer today. Alex is a UVA grad and CEO of Babylon Micro Farms, which is an intelligent platform that makes indoor farming simple and accessible enabling anyone to grow their own fresh food. Thank you for joining.
5: Thank you very much. Excited to be here.
4: Yeah, super. So I'm actually really interested in this topic because a few years ago, I got to learn about food deserts at school. And food deserts are like these geographic areas where people basically have no convenient options for securing affordable food or healthy food, especially fruits and vegetables. Um, this is really why I was interested in talking to you. And there is some pretty interesting data from the Association of American Medical Colleges and USDA. Um, It says that 54 million people are food insecure and 23.5 million people live in food deserts. And that means that one in six Americans are struggling to eat daily. So any technology that can help with this, I'm a big fan of. Anybody that's helping businesses with this, I think it's a really cool idea. Can you talk a little bit about what makes Babylon different than the rest of vertical farms?
5: Yes. So as in the first, like, you know, you look at the scale of the problem. As you mentioned, there are food deserts all across the U.S. Up to 50% of produce gets wasted before it reaches the plate. And so it's a really inefficient system. Uh, And vertical farming provides an opportunity to shorten that supply chain and grow food in cities right next to the consumer. So that's that's a really exciting thing for the industry. Uh, and for what we do, we're focused on on-site vertical farming, which is a new kind of category that's emerging. Uh, and that is basically building vertical farms in or adjacent to the point of consumption. So we help businesses and communities to grow their own food by using modular vertical farms that are literally attached to the food service operation. So there's no supply chain at all. And they're able to have their own self-sufficient supply of like herbs, leafy greens, and other perishable produce items on-site all year around. So it is a a much more localized way of growing food that's closer to the end consumer, you know, it really engages and sup- sup- inspires the communities. Uh, and yeah, we just remove that supply chain altogether. So it is uh, yeah. much more resource efficient.
4: Yeah, it sounds a lot more sanitary too. You think about how, all, like how far your food uh, food goes. I go to the farmer's market a lot and I live in New York City. And sometimes I see where the farmers are coming from and I'm like, oh man, like this food came on a truck from a pretty long way. I, I wonder where it's been. Um, so how much money can, if you know this, Can companies or people save by using a vertical farm versus having to invest in like that supply chain aspect?
5: Yeah, so it really depends on the produce variety. One of the advantages of our model is that we can grow north of fifty varieties of like herbs, microgreens, and a lot of those things you can't source. So the ROI on those kind of highly perishable heirloom varieties is really high Um, comparatively. You know, do bulk lettuce, things like that. It is uh, you know less high. We're kind of reaching for parity with kind of wholesale produce. And uh, as our costs fall, that's kind of where we're trying to aim is just to make this a uh, reliable and cost effective way for people to grow their own fresh food.
4: So there must be like a sustainability aspect to this as well. And like you said, this is cutting down on supply chain, which I can't imagine that's very good for the environment, having to move all these things with trucks all the time. Are you guys any more sustainable than the typical approach?
5: Yeah, way, way more sustainable across okay. a number of different fronts. So firstly, we grow plants using hydroponics. So that's growing plants in water instead of soil. Uh, oh, wow. Me- yeah. And that method uses up to 95% less water than conventional agriculture. There are no pesticides or chemicals. Uh, and the plants grow two to three times more quickly. So that that method is is super resource efficient. And then by growing it on site, we have no plastic waste. We don't need to wash it. There's very minimal spoilage. And of course, no pesticides. So Um, You know, it is a much more sustainable way in that sense. And there's no transportation as well. So we're really like eliminating that supply chain, all of the different steps that come with it, um, resulting in a better and more sustainable product for the end consumer.
4: Gotcha. So you graduated from UVA just a few years ago. How did you find out that this was a problem? Like this doesn't seem like a typical problem that most college students recognize.
5: Yes, I was studying social entrepreneurship and one of the projects was exploring how to use hydroponic farming in refugee camps to feed mm-hmm. people. And so the initial insight was where we were trying to calculate how big could a farm be to feed a person to sustain a family or, or support a small business. And that was a very different way of viewing this industry. And the status quo in the industry is still bigger, as better. So these are massive CapEx projects. Um, we saw a different way. We saw a way to kind of basically leverage remote management technology and sensors to run these farms through the cloud eliminating the barriers to entry and really enabling businesses and communities and empowering them to grow their own food.
4: Got you. So did you start this when you were a college student? Or were you out of school by the time you started this? Yes,
5: I was uh, 22 uh, in my last year of college when I started the wow. company and we um, kind of bootstrapped it in the early days, just trying to win competitions and grants and so forth. And then, you know, here we are five, six years later and uh, yeah. you know, it's come a long way.
4: So are you guys venture backed or have you been able to do all of this off of the grants?
5: We've raised about nine point six million to date in equity. is just wow. kicking off our Series A. Um, you know, we hit a lot of proof points on the technology yeah. side, and you know, it's really starting to scale up now. So it's very exciting. Yeah,
4: interesting time to be uh, to be raising, right?
5: Yeah, it, it is. Although, you know, I think yeah. for us in the industry, these the sustainability tailwinds are a lot longer term than the current macro environment. So mm. you know, we're pretty hopeful.
4: So I know VCs are always hesitant to invest in anything with like a hardware perspective. How do you get around this? Are you guys actually the people that own the vertical farms? And for those people listening that don't know what vertical farms are, I guess I should have explained this in the beginning, but they basically look like these boxes that you're growing vegetables in. They're probably a little bit bigger than a vending machine, right?
5: They're a little bit bigger and a lot better looking. You'd actually want to have (laughs) one of these in your lobby or wherever it might be. Um, So our our business model, we we sell the units and then we have a, a software subscription with them. Uh, and then we can also lease them. So if you look at it as kind of a connected device, it's really the, the bulk of our margin and our revenue comes from those long-term recurring revenue contracts
4: mm, to support the units. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And how many companies, how many um, people, I guess, do you think that you're feeding today?
5: Oh, so we did uh, about half a million servings of salad last year. I can tell wow. you that much, uh, and we should be about three x that this year. So. You know, we're scaling up now. We have farms in about 30 states, uh, over 100 locations, and we should be, um, you know, a couple more, uh, double that this year. And, you yeah. know, clients like Aramark, Sodexo, Ikea, you know, and Name and Marcus, they're all kind of adopting this and pushing it out to the location. So our impact is, is growing with our farm S- fleet.
4: Do you mean it would, this would be like in an Ikea, like the store? Yes.
5: Yeah, like if I would right. walk
4: into an Ikea and I'd see this like over where they're selling like the Swedish meatballs.
5: That is exactly it. So Can't yeah, you. when you okay. when you get some dill and parsley on top of your Swedish meatballs, they'll be grown in our farms. And, you know, yeah. IKEA is a great kind of thought leader in this. They came to us being like, we want to be self-sufficient in these ingredients. Can you make it happen? And, and we can. And so yeah. yeah, they're now installing the farms in their um, on-site restaurants.
4: How long do you think till we start seeing this like for individual use to like people have these in their homes?
5: So we designed a lot of flexibility into our remote management tech so we can power other hardware. So the consumer application is definitely on the horizon. I think a lot of it is about scaling up the hardware and the manufacturing math that comes with that. So our costs are falling already. And over the next couple of years, as we ramp up, those costs are going to continue to plummet and eventually unlock markets. They're a little bit more price sensitive, like the consumer.
4: So you're obviously very future driven. Do you guys have any other plans for the future?
5: Yeah, so we're actually working on some new products now. Uh, you know, We've got some really exciting corporate clients who are actually driving the innovation for us. So as we look at this on-site farming category, we're seeing uh, our clients now recommend solutions for that. So things that are slightly high volume, optimized for ROI, and then also some on the educational side, but they all run on our software. So we can help them kind of deploy these on-site farming systems within their client base.
4: That's awesome. So I talked to a lot of founders too that are around your age, but none of them work in this like food tech ag tech space? Has it been difficult to navigate like this landscape as a young founder?
5: Yeah, I think there are some real challenges with running kind of an, an operationally complex and like industrial based business, right? We have hardware, yeah. we have software, we have a kind of connected device offering, which is uh, orders of magnitude more complicated than like an app or something a yeah. <laughs> like that. Um, you know, and, and we, we love that, you know, we have a great young talented team and we also have some experienced people around us. So yeah, there are challenges, but you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun.
4: Very cool. Did you always know that you wanted to be a founder?
5: Yes and no. I don't think in like direct terms. I wasn't studying startups when I was like a kid. But in hindsight, as I hear about the sort of traits that lead to people being founders, I was like, oh yeah, there's some patterns there that, that make sense.
4: Very cool. So how do people find out about Babylon? Because one thing, again, that's very different from you than some of the other people I've had on are people have been bundling their social media. We talk a lot about brand building with certain founders. You guys seem to be absolutely freaking killing it, but are pretty under the radar. So how are people finding out about you?
5: Yeah, so uh, we're, we're big on LinkedIn, Instagram, You know, Babylon LinkedIn. microforms okay. is the company name. And um, yeah, we're very under the radar. We're based in Richmond, Virginia. And I think now that we're scaling up with some of these clients, it's really time to kind of get some yeah. more exposure.
4: It's so interesting though seeing, I feel like sometimes it's very easy for especially young founders in particular around our age. Get stuck in this like Twitter verse where, um, as a founder, like they're really, really engaged with like talking about building in public and things like that. What are your thoughts about building in public versus staying under the radar?
5: So I personally don't do social media. I do LinkedIn is the one that I just have to. So I'm, I'm all about building under the radar until you're ready to show people what you're been working on.
4: Got you. Is there a reason for that?
5: I think it's just a distraction. You know, I think what we're doing is so engaging, and we—I we, think we get you know fair amount of coverage now, especially as yeah. like sort of um, releasing new products and stuff. But it is—it's uh, a huge distraction. I
4: think. Yeah, and I actually met you through somebody else who I'll be having on the sh- the show in the future. Um, And he has a video game company, and it is—I believe he must have been—he is also from Virginia don't think they went to school with you they might have yeah, did they? they did that's what we they met. did so you're obviously plugged into the founder network in virginia what is it like being a founder that isn't based in new york or sf or miami how do you do you see any differences there
5: well i'm, I'm from the uk originally so i have a, a very kind say, of mixed really. view. <laughs> um it is it's different you know i think you, jared who you're talking about he went off to yc in california yeah. so he's kind of done that wall, and we we've stayed on the radar we stayed in virginia and i think um, there are a lot of funds that are looking just for that, right? You know, there's, there's mm. this whole kind of rise of the rest, um, you know, and, and, and I think we're embodying that down here in Richmond. Um, and I think, do you know what you want to do? And it's just about execution. It doesn't really matter where
4: you are. Do you have any advice for founders that aren't based in necessarily like target cities for other, uh, tech people to be living in? Like how does, especially advice, honestly, on hiring, that would be really interesting to hear about.
5: Yeah. And you know, it's very company specific, but I'd say for us, we um, leveraged the resources in Virginia very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're one of the few kind of ag tech companies in the region. We also were taking things you know, fairly slowly, right? Your first, you know, 10 or first hundred customers, I'd say, you know, most of them are in the people we knew and we went and built those relationships. I don't think there's any advantage to being in a big city when it comes to finding those like initial early adopters. Yeah. Um, and I think the cost of hiring and cost of office space, all of those things are much lower. Um, but we're in, we're an at work company, right? We have people in the office and we have done for the last two years. So that has presented some challenges, but I think that the talent pool is, is much bigger than people think in some of these cities that are a little bit off the beaten track.
4: I totally agree. I have one of my best friends Anna Schimmel, went to Richmond and absolutely loved it. Richmond, the university is actually a little bit farther away from Richmond downtown, um, which I think is really sneaky there. How they get you there on your college, your college tour sure there. Like, Where's Richmond? They're like, not not that close actually. but. Um, <laughs> We got to pass through Richmond a few times and I really, not only is it just like a beautiful area to live, but I would definitely want to work there. Um, Do you find that it is, you said, are you fully, fully in person then?
5: We're fully in person and we're flexible. And I I do think if you're a founder in a small city, you can travel. Like it is easier for me to go to New York and San Francisco regularly than, and
4: have the office based here. And I think that's, that's a setup that's really worked for us. How often do you have to leave?
5: Uh, I don't have to leave ever, but I choose, <laughs> I choose to leave pro- probably a couple times a year to, to New nice. York, uh, London, and San Francisco.
4: Nice. That's awesome. Do you find it's difficult to attract talent when you're in Richmond as a company? Um,
5: I think there are some challenges that, and I, I think COVID didn't help actually because now the expectation is that you have these remote roles. Um mm-hmm. So we're kind of adjusting accordingly, especially when it comes to like software hires. But yeah. you know, for a lot of our hardware and operations, they, they have to be in person. I think there is a, There are a lot of people that actually still really enjoy coming into the office. Um, So as long as you're a flexible workplace, then that doesn't seem to be too much of an issue for us.
4: I'm one of those people. When I've never worked in like a traditional office, except for, I guess, when you count interning. I interned at a bank, so I had to go into office there. But when the pandemic hit, I was a senior in college, so I've actually never worked in an office. And I like working from home. Um, I don't know if I like working from home, though because it's the only thing I know or because I actually like working from home because sometimes I go to WeWorks and I'm like, wait a minute, like getting out of my my bedroom would be kind of nice sometimes. For the most part, I really do enjoy the flexibility. So I'm really interested to see like the landscape of hiring in the future, especially with our generation. I think it's going to be interesting. Obviously, with hardware, that is a completely different beast. Do you have any other founders that you look up to in this space?
5: uh i've gotten to know a couple of kind of um more manufacturing oriented founders as Pack here in town they've been a fantastic resource to us and like um you know those are companies where they have to you have to go into work because it is a product that needs to get made by someone and i think yeah. um you know that and for for companies across us we can't just have a, a permanently remote workforce it doesn't work for the economy
4: especially when like you keep saying like hardware like it just doesn't work and we've talked about this on the show before how there's been some companies, I believe it was Apple that we were talking about on the show. Um, we, meaning Jason and Molly, not me in that conversation. Um, I'm not sure in the episode, but they were talking about how some Apple employees didn't want to go back to the office. But it was one of those things like they kind of had to because they were working on hardware teams and there's still like that friction. I'm like, that's so interesting. You, you're working on a physical product and you still don't want to go into the office. It's not like you can have that same kind of collaboration at home.
5: Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think if you look at where things are heading and from infrastructure investment, new technologies, all of them are going to have hardware and software components. And so that's the trend that's in motion and, and, you know, companies need to adapt to that. And I think Apple and others realize that the water cooler chat, all of that creativity is, is where a lot of the value lies. And so you need to kind of foster that, especially if you have a hardware component to your business.
4: Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think that's really interesting. And. What do you think that we should be spending more time on in the vertical farming space? Like, do you see any subject within there that we are just not focusing on enough?
5: Um, yeah, I think the opportunity for government subsidies is is massive. If, if there were even a fraction of the subsidies available that you see in like wind, solar and other renewable energy sources, it would completely blow up the industry. So I think that's a topic that needs a lot more attention. Um, and then also at the corporate level, you know, vertical farming is a very broad like industry. Um, and I think if you look at what we're doing and you look at the potential for individual companies to invest in um produce sourcing and yep. make their supply chain more resilient to have a better quality for their end consumer, that is a huge opportunity um, that would be helped by subsidies, but it would also directly benefit solutions like ours. So, you know, look at what IKEA is doing, look at what Aramark Cedx are doing. They are using vertical farming as a way to source produce more sustainably and that really could apply to anywhere that consumes fresh produce. So I'd like to see that be a a big topic in the
4: future. Do you think that, or have you seen restaurants like really jump on this kind of technology yet?
5: Uh, Yes. I think at the high end, like look at Chef Dan Barber, these other kind of Michelin star restaurants where the whole thing's farm to table and that that's amazing. And I think it shows that it can be done, but what we're trying to see is how does, how do you move from that to, More of a mass market appeal. And a a lot of that's driven by cost. A lot of it's driven by, you you know, the data collection and the tools haven't been available. And I think that's why companies like us exist, right? We're driving that change. We're making it more accessible so that your everyday restaurant, grocery store, even a consumer can eventually start growing their own food.
4: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Well, I don't really have any more questions for you. I just think this is the most interesting industry. I'm really excited to see what you guys do. Um, like I said, we were introduced by a mutual friend that's coming on the podcast soon. Excited to see you guys are like polar opposites. He's from Brooklyn doing stuff with iOS games, and you're out here doing vertical farming. So I'm very happy that we were connected because if it weren't for him, I definitely wouldn't have gotten to know you. Um, and if anybody's interested in looking to connect with you or to find out more about your company, where would they look?
5: So Babylonmicrofarms.com. Um, yeah, we're very active on on LinkedIn as well if you want to follow us there.
4: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Alex, Alexander. This was a really interesting conversation. Uh, I hope to catch up with you in in like a year and see how many Ikea's are, uh, you know, embracing a vertical farming.
5: Can't wait. Thanks so Hopefully much. Rachel.
4: Yeah, thank you. All right.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to tune in on Sunday. We do have an episode, another awesome edition of VC Sunday School, and then a super high energy this week in
0: Climate Startups. That's right, and we will be off on Monday for Juneteenth, so check back on Tuesday uh, for a recap of the news that happened over the long weekend, and please reflect on June 19th about yeah. our country, race, uh equality, and all these important items. We used to take St. Patrick's off. I'm an Irish guy. Uh, we say Columbus Day off. Uh, we never had a Greek holiday here. I think everybody should take June 19th off. That's just my yeah. personal feeling. I think it's a good day to reflect. meeting. Mm-hmm. do some reading, reflect on it, be open-minded, uh, be thoughtful, but we're taking it off. And I think maybe for your company, consider it for next year. Maybe you take it off next year. Um, yeah.
1: And enjoy the weekend, everybody. We got a lot of great guests coming up on the show too. I hope you enjoyed yes. today's interview. Look for more of that. There's going to be a lot more.
0: Yes. Have a, great, have a great weekend, everybody. And we'll be Bye. back uh, on Sunday and Tuesday. Rest up, everybody.